Growing up in the 1980s, there were three musicians who epitomized American rock and roll. Their sound and their style painted a sonic mural that captured the images of apple pie, summer baseball, and an endless sprawl of cornfields bisected by highways and train tracks that was everything a child knew about his country. As if those images and the accompanying soundtrack were passed down like a genetic memory. The first of those artists was Huey Lewis. To a pre-teenage Ryan, he represented the lure of the glitzy and glamorous West Coast. Huey Lewis's music was rock and roll pop. It was rhythmic and danceable. I mean, danceable in that 80s sort of way. But not as robust as other bands. The hooks were lighter and airier, like the breeze coming off the Pacific surf. The second musician was John Cougar Mellencamp, whose portraits of the American heartland represented the world if not right outside my window, then just a mile to the southwest. Although my home was a college town, 90% of the county was farmland. And on summer nights, just as the sun was going down, John Cougar's songs of people that I felt like I knew wafted in from the fields. The third star was Bruce Springsteen. And of the three, he was my least favorite. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. If you've listened to me on other podcasts, a familiar refrain I often come back to is that I was a pretty dumb kid. Springsteen's America was darker, but I didn't understand that at the time. He represented a kind of anxiety I was way too young to sympathize with. An unquenchable restlessness of spirit thrashing against the walls imposed by bankers and politicians and factory foremen. Springsteen's songs took place between midnight and 2 a.m., when the soul is tortured and hungry. His lyrics were ripped out of the hearts of every young man trapped in post-Vietnam industrialized America, where going to work was just a metaphor for building your own coffin. Every chorus was a dilemma. Stay in your dead-end job or get in the car with nothing but the clothes on your back and just fly. Ask that girl you love if she wants to take a ride, but one way or another, you're out of here. Take the highway out of town, through the night, into oblivion, and maybe find some happy on the other side. Of course, I knew none of this in the 1980s. All I knew, all I thought I knew of Bruce Springsteen, was the image of his blue jean-covered ass in front of the Stars and Stripes. I thought Born in the USA was a proud patriotic anthem, and kind of a lazy one at that. I had no idea how dark it actually was, although the first line of the song, Born Down in a Dead Man's Town, should have been a giveaway. Give me a break, though. I could barely read, much less contextualize American adolescence from lyrics any more complex than I fight authority, authority always wins. So Bruce Springsteen was not my jam. I didn't get Born in the USA, and I didn't like Dancing in the Dark. I mean, really? The singer pulling Alex P. Keaton's girlfriend onto the stage to dance, that's got to be the hallmark of pop culture for the rest of my life. As the decade drew to a close, I heard my dad listening to Tunnel of Love, 
I liked the title track quite a bit for the whimsical imagery it conveyed. By the 1990s, though, I was entering my first mature phase of music consumption, one which had little interest in the songs of my father's generation. And besides, by the mid-90s, hadn't Springsteen settled into a comfortable role of soundtrack artist after the Oscar-winning Streets of Philadelphia and the lesser-known but superior Secret Garden? Two things altered my perception of the artist and eventually led to my burgeoning Springsteen fandom. In 1995, Dad got the album The Ghost of Tom Joad. I remember staring at the album cover and being mystified, possibly terrified. It was a painting of a man with his bare back to the viewer in front of a canvas. The man seems to be twisting or contorting into some kind of tense position. The features were all soft focus with heavy shadows. The man's back was awash in warm tones, while the background looked like a dirty, grime-slicked rag. But the colors on both the background and the man's back were strangely fluid. The painter's effect created a Rorschach ink blot that stirred impressions of violence and struggle when I looked at it. It was upsetting to look at. Was a piece of art supposed to make you feel this way? I told you I was dumb, didn't I? Dad took the CD into his room and played it. From my room down the hall, I heard the opening notes of the harmonica cut through the silence, announcing that something had shifted, but I didn't know just what. Also that name, Tom Joad. I'd heard that before, but I didn't know where. A year later, Springsteen released yet another soundtrack single. This time it was Dead Man Walking from the film of the same name. I got that soundtrack for the two Eddie Vedder songs, as Pearl Jam was very much my band at the time. But Springsteen's hauntingly quiet title track, which would garner him another Academy Award nomination, did its number on me. This wasn't the boss with a thundering rock and roll band backing him, and it wasn't synthesizers and dancing. It was stripped down, just a voice and an acoustic guitar, and it was what I was looking for. So I asked to listen to The Ghost of Tom Joad. I put it on in my room and started to listen. After the first song, I turned off the lights and laid down on my bed, listening to the rest of the album in pitch blackness. My sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down here, darling. In 1997, the film Copland included two quiet songs from the 1980 album The River that blew me away. I listened to the album, but aside from those two songs, I wasn't feeling the rock piano and sax-driven sound. Dad surmised that I was drawn to Bruce, but curiously ambivalent toward the E Street band that supported him on his earlier records. Dad's solution was to play Nebraska for me. The one-two punch of the title track, followed by Atlantic City, knocked me out, and every song after that was a sweet bonus. Between Nebraska and Tom Joad and the Unplugged album, I had found the sound that I loved. Springsteen Acoustic. And that seemed to be good enough, until the early 2000s. I watched the HBO concert Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band live in New York City, and the raw, wild energy of the songs blew me away for uh, the umpteenth time. Every number was better than the last. Songs that I loved unplugged sounded just as good as rockers. Songs that I never cared for before sounded epic with the band behind him. I came home from college for spring break, or maybe the summer, and I talked to Dad about the show. We watched it together, and he played me some more tracks from the live 1975-85 set. 
This was how I came to like the E Street Band, from their live shows. It's a little backwards, I know, but when I returned to college, I brought with me the first two Springsteen albums that I bought that weren't dads, Nebraska and Darkness on the Edge of Town. It took a long, weird road to become the Springsteen fan I am today, to recognize that the hero of his songs was that restless youth working to pay off that car, working under the hood, working for a few bucks so he could take the pretty girl out. That young man so desperate to get behind the wheel and escape the inevitability of adulthood. That man kicking and screaming so as not to become one more indentured servant, one more cog in the American machine. I didn't know that Bruce was singing about me in my teens and 20s. And now, as I near 40, I see that he was always singing about every stage of my life. He captured the shared national experience of rebellion and dissolution and maturation. Did we ever get out? Did we ever escape? Not really. One highway leads to another town, but fate is always the same. There is no escape from time. But what Bruce knew and what I eventually learned is that no matter if you're in the driver's seat or on the factory line, in the hospital bed, or the electric chair, the heart is always hungry. The spirit will never rest. Welcome to a special boss-sized episode of Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, the Atlantic City to my Asbury Park, my brother Neil Daly. What's up, bro? Wow, dude. Hey, uh, yeah, this is that. What an, what an intro. Seriously, I mean, you should do like the foreword to another Bruce biography or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to do this with you. I know we've talked about this for a long time, and there are a few artists that we want to do an epic boss size podcast about. And this is going to be fun for so many reasons. I'm excited because for all the reasons you described how you came to like him, my journey was almost the exact opposite. And so I can't wait to kind of, you know, you're, you're a Bruce Unplugged guy. I, I'm an E Street Band guy. So it's it's going to be fun to, to kind of do this. So I'm happy to join you on this one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and, and we're going to hear your story in a minute. But uh, for the listeners, I did kind of want to tell you a little bit more about the gestation and, and how this uh, episode came about. Because notably, one album that you didn't hear me mention in that very long intro was Born to Run. And that just shows you how far the show has gotten from the initial concept. (laughs) This month marks the 45th anniversary of Bruce's third and arguably greatest album, Born to Run. It was actually released on August 25th, 1975. Uh, So with that in mind, we had thought about doing just an album review. We were just going to go through the song one one song at a time and just go through the album. That would be the episode. But... It kind of bothered me a little bit because that meant leaving off a lot of songs that I love. And I just, I hated the idea of doing our first Bruce Springsteen episode and not talking about some of my favorite songs. And it would also kind of break from the usual kind of comfortable format that we've got going that we've established for this podcast. On the other hand, narrowing down our top five songs was getting impossible. (laughs) So we thought, okay, maybe we could do two or three episodes and just stagger their release. And uh, you were right. That just, that didn't feel right. So we went back to just covering born to run for the anniversary. 
And then I realized <laughs> this is also the 40th anniversary of The River, which came out in October of 1980. So we went back to the idea of covering <laughs> our favorite songs, but five would never be enough. Six would never be enough. Nope. Seven songs would never be enough. So we finally said, screw it. We're going big. We're going epic for Bruce. And, and this is our boss-sized episode. Listeners, you are going to hear us cover 10 songs each. So it's going to be a while that we're here. So are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> but before we dive into those lists, uh, you've heard my history, my origin story with Bruce Springsteen. You probably heard much more than you wanted to. So, <laughs> Neil, you've got 10 minutes. What's your story? <laughs> well, God. Well, luckily for you, and more importantly, luckily for our listeners, I've kind of touched on this stuff a little bit. I've kind of mentioned this during the Father's Day episode where we talked about me discovering uh, the Born to Run video. But that's kind of where I'm going to start. I first, you know, for those that didn't listen to that, um, I first discovered Bruce from the live Born to Run video that MTV played to coincide with the release of the box set Live 75 to 85. And I knew that our father had a bunch of Bruce Springsteen albums and he'd listened to them before. But again, kind of like you, that was, you know, and I've touched on this before, that was dad's music and I didn't, I wanted to rebel against it. Didn't want to. But Bruce was on MTV now. So that made it cool for me. And I'm going to talk about this once we get into the list too. I should preface this that I personally have a tendency to gravitate towards the live tracks anyway. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I heard them first. Mm-hmm. That could be something to do with it. But almost every song on my list that's a studio track, I probably like a live version of it better anyway. I would but, agree with that. I would go okay, sign that, yeah. Cool, cool. So anyway, but then back to this video. So I was blown away by the visual of this like stadium rock anthem being sung, you know, outside at summer festivals, you know, with like a sea of crowd stretching as far as the eyes can see, but sung by a guy who looked like everyone in DeKalb. (laughs) It was like, I mean, he wore Levi's sleeveless shirts. Hell, he even ripped the sleeves off his flannels (laughs) And and a baseball cap backwards. Plus, plus, dude, he was muscular. And that was like, that was, that was crazy. So, so he sang and he strummed with power, but he was basically the every man. You talked about this. He, he was, he sung songs about me and wanting to get out of the small town and having dreams and, and wanting to just get in the car and go. But he didn't look like what MTV told me rock stars are supposed to look like, you know, he looked like us. So, so I remember, so when I saw that video, I saw dad. I told dad that I liked him and he went out and bought the five LP box set of live recordings. And I remember that the stereo was in our bedroom. I sat down and, and listened and played those records for like all five LPs back to back to back. It was ridiculous. And the energy of the live performances sucked me in immediately. But I also loved the band and it was not necessarily my type of music. There were, you know, there were a lot of songs were piano driven. A lot of songs had sax and horns and, and sounded like, I mean, I'll talk about this later on and stuff, but it was kind of like, there were songs that sounded like Motown, songs that sounded like soul, songs mm-hmm. that sounded like jazz. It was, it was all over the map. And I just realized what a great band they were. So I went back through dad's record collection eventually, and I started listening to the studio albums of all the songs. And it took me a little bit longer to appreciate them because I loved the energy of the live tracks. That was, you know, that's the one thing that jumps out at me. Musicianship is all the same, but the energy was just insane. But eventually I became so enamored with this guy who screamed his vocals in the soft and beautiful, we are the world (laughs) (laughs) that I, that for some reason I had to start paying attention to these originals. And then I started reading the lyrics and then I fell less in love with the, the local auto mechanic image of Bruce and more in love with Bruce, the poet. 
the guy that wrote Madman Drummers, Bummers, and Indians of the Summer with a Teenage Diplomat. And I fell in love with this band who sounded more like a rock version of the Motown groups that dad played. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, all the stuff when I, you know, once I started to, the combination of this insanely talented jazz and blues band that even had hints of the blues brothers in it. You know, there was, there were certain elements about this, this epically talented band, you know, sung by a guy that looked like us, but just this fascinating, powerful singer with this urban poetry that was way different than anything. I mean, just the way the phrasing and stuff. I mean, the guy reads like a Steinbeck novel, which we'll come back to later. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so, you know, this, all of this led like this whole band led by the hero of, of the of the storyteller led into the wild night by their fearless leader, Bad Scooter, searching for his groove. And that was that was it. I was hooked ever since. I, I, I completely agree with, as I mentioned, like the, the live versions were what hipped me to the rest of the band and really his early stuff, because um, I probably would have been content with just a few albums. Um, yeah. But it was really just like seeing and hearing those live performances and, and that energy really was my gateway into liking him. And I do, uh, before we go further, I do want to give a shout out to one of our uh, regular listeners and a guy I'm, I'm Facebook friends with, Rich Matsumoto. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, he hit me to, it's a website, I think it's called Bruce Springsteen Live. I think that's it. Um, and, and I could double check that or, or look it up. But if you can imagine like those old like Columbia house, like things where like, you know, <laughs> like you basically get like a subscription, they'll send you a new album every month or, or oh, something. God, like that. Yeah. They've kind of got something going like that for Bruce Springsteen live concerts where they've got like the system that curates these old, old live performances that he's done throughout his career. So Wait, is it, is it, is the site called like Bruce boots or something? Is that, I, I is that what it is? Cause I've just, I've discovered something like that. Very similar, but it's like a YouTube channel, but it's, okay, it's, they might, there might be a connection then. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But ba- basically, yeah, it's, it's like full, full recordings of, mm-hmm. of, of these concerts and these yeah. concerts, by the way, like you said in our podcast, the, the concerts, Bruce's nicknamed the boss because his concerts were as a band leader, he led them for three hours on stage. Oh yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's, he's, it's, he's it's an insane, it. it's an insane amount of energy that he managed to channel into an audience, into a live performance for that long. And so some of these concerts, like when you go back, it's, it's, these 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 recordings are monstrous. He is like a band leader, a circus ringleader, and a like a big tent revivalist preacher all in one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's a heartland rock version of Prince. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, like check these out because like the live. I mean, they, you know, one of these concert recordings and everything might be like from sometime in like 1979, and the next one they do might be from 2003. Right, and then they'll go back and everything, and it's just like you never know what's coming, but it's always it's always this good stuff. So, um, yeah, and he also had this really cool tendency too. There was like, well, I'll use my own example. My very first introduction to Thunder Road was on the live album, which was a just piano ballad, mm-hmm. solo piano, and him singing. I never knew the band played on that until I years later, mm-hmm. and I went back and listened to it. So anyway, he has this fantastic way of doing things differently live. Like like one of the forgettable tracks from Asbury park was called for you i didn't like the studio album of that but if you find he played that song as a piano ballad by himself on stage throughout 75 to 78 and all of a sudden the song takes on a whole new life i love it now so just an example uh all right well i think that's actually a good transition then let us get into our lists and you can start us off what is the first song that you're going to talk about 
I'm going to go with the aforementioned Thunder Road off of Born to Run. kind of like the solo piano version better from the live 75 to 85 collection but i think it's just because i heard it first and got mm. familiar with it that way but i had to choose the studio version because you know born to run is a mastership uh is a masterpiece of musicianship and songwriting and and this is this song is like a really good example of a lot of the things i'm going to talk about as we go deep into our list like most of born to run um this song was written on the piano and I think, from what I hear, Bruce brought a lot of the material to the band as as the piano, which also shows his musicianship, by the way, too, that he can he's well versed in playing a ton of instruments, too. Mm-hmm. But um, from what I hear, and I, I you know I've heard rumors that have circulated throughout you know the the re-releases of Born to Run and then anniversaries and stuff, I heard that John Landau and Jimmy Iovine, the uh, engineer, uh, said that Bruce had about like. Thunder Road was like a 10, 12 minute song originally. And they were the ones that kind of helped him reel it in so that it could build into something more immediate and moving and powerful as it went. But this song is kind of indicative of a lot of the songs I'm going to talk about. The poetry on the album just blows me away. I mean, the, the phrase that rings true to me the most, it, it like resonates with me. They haunt this dusty beach road in the skeleton frames of burned out Chevrolets. <laughs> and I, I, you know, honestly, Ryan, I give you credit. Your your intro to this was very poetic in and of itself. It's perfect that you phrased everything that way for a Bruce Springsteen thing, because I consider him a modern poet. And it sounds like you kind of, some of the same phrasing and some of the same things kind of resonate with you too. I just, he has a way of putting these things that are not so vaguely descriptive that you don't get it. I mean, they're just really creative ways of seeing the world through the eyes that we all have. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's that's just one example of this. And this song, the opening song in the album, it sets the stage perfectly for the rest of the album. As two protagonists decide to, you know, like you said, you know, decide to take a chance and take a risk and get in the car and go. And I love the way you said that in the beginning, where you're like, "Get in the car with me or not, but I'm out of here." <laughs> you know that that is that rings true for almost the entire album. Yeah. And Thunder Road, I have to lead off with this because this. If not for one other song on my list, this would be my favorite Springsteen song of all time. And it's appropriate because it's also the lead-off song to the Born to Run album, which is yep. what kind of what, what brought us to this episode in the first place. So, yes. Yeah, it, it's very fitting there. Um, and I, what I read was that the uh, as as he was composing the album, originally the song Born to Run was supposed to be the lead-off uh, the lead-off song for the album. And then he wrote this one later on while they were putting it together. And then, like, once he had this one, it's like, no, this was the title track. Um, so then, then 
it's like, okay, Born to Run, it still works as an opener, so then they made it the beginning of side B on the record. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great song. It's a sort of quintessential song for him. It's about longing, adventure, this world opening up kind of bigger. Um, a line that I always come back to is, all the redemption I can offer is beneath this dirty hood. Yeah. Um, like, just, oh, like, God, that's so of, beautiful. Yeah, it, right in there. Um, I agree. I really like the live version of this that's just all piano. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the thing is, like, the, as I listen to it, I keep waiting. It feels like it's it's pregnant with this power that's just, like, beneath the surface. I keep waiting for that piano version to kick in with the band, and it never quite does it. Yeah, um, you know, honestly, yeah, I think that, honestly, had I never heard the piano version solely, the studio version is the perfect version of the song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's kind of the way it should be. Like, it should kick into overdrive. And when he should rock out, when he says, this, I got this guitar and learned how to make it talk, all that stuff makes perfect sense. Yeah. I just heard the other one first. Right, right. <laughs> understood, understood, yeah. Something I, I was just kind of looking up for fun last night. I, I found that Rolling Stone had composed a list of the 100 greatest uh, Bruce Springsteen songs of all time. Uh, and the list was curated by like 50 people from like staff writers, music critics, a lot of artists, people in the industry, everybody from Melissa Etheridge to um, um, Questlove, even um, uh, uh, Jackson Brown uh, <laughs> and, and just a, a couple other people. So I would just, I started making a note of the songs that we're going to talk about and where they slotted on the list. Thunder Road is number three on their all time list of wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh my God! I, well, I'm very curious. I, I keep ranking that as we go compared to Rolling Stone magazine. Just don't tell people where to find that list because then they won't listen to this. <laughs> good, good point. Good point. <laughs> All right. Well, then we move on to my first song, and the song is "Badlands," the opening track from the album "Darkness on the Edge of Town." This album came out in 1978. This was the first album after Born to Run. Uh, and the reason for the three-year gap, as many people know, that um, Bruce was fighting with his uh, longtime producer, Mike Apple, who had produced his first three albums. And, and they were having this whole fallout and contention where he couldn't, uh, you know, he was having this dispute with the, the producer and the, and the record company. So he basically had to, he was writing all of these songs while they were touring and he was coming up with the stuff and he just had to sit on it. He couldn't release it until they had settled. Wasn't it, what, I, thought, I thought that Mike Apple was also his manager. And there was a, there was a yes, like, a, think, there was some, something contractually like the guy was skimming from him or something i think that was yeah i believe that was the case i i didn't know all of the details i just knew that it was it was kind of yeah it was bad news um yeah. he, he actually writes about it in a song that we'll yes. talk about later <laughs> on. Yeah. um as i mentioned in my intro darkness on the edge of town was one of the first two bruce albums that i actually bought i paid money i am pretty sure i got them used at record revolution uh, the store in town <laughs> Um, just because I'd heard something, I just wanted to take some some Bruce albums with me to college when I went back. 
that year. Uh, and this one I got. Um, my reason for getting this one was largely inspired by hearing the live performance of this song. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even b- before I heard like the rest of the album, it was just this song that was so incredible. Um, as a lead-off track for the album, it has this spiritual religious quality to it it feels anthemic anthemic it feels yep. huge. um it's like an enunciation it, it, there's this message to it that he's bringing and if you listen to the album born to run you know you get all of this feeling of youthful rebellion and escape and redemption darkness on the edge of town is sort of a response to that from a few years later it's it, I've, I've heard it described as it's kind of when you stop running and you turn around and start to fight for the things that you want uh, wow, and that's, song, that's beautiful. Yeah, and this song then is sort of like the opening salvo to that battle, whatever it is. But uh, it, like in terms of the musicality of it, uh, it I, I think what really builds up this percussive like nature uh, and, and enunciation feel of it is Max Weinberg's drum track. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know a whole lot of, I can't read music and everything, but you, you can set the tempo to this with what Weinberg does on this. It's It's six beats, and then he does three in double time. Uh, so it, it goes, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three. And it's that, that beat that like, it, it builds it. It's sort of like a, a drum, a parade. Uh, yep. There's like this processional feel to it, like a march. And it's just incredible. It blows me away. And, and this isn't a competition. I'm not topping you or anything, but if Thunder Road was number three on Rolling Stones list, Badlands is number two. Oh, you son of a bitch. All right, well, I'll, I'll get number one. Yeah, oh, well, okay. This is, I think, I'm, I'm actually curious now going forward. I want to know how many first songs off albums do we have on this list? That would be very interesting because this, again, kind of sets the stage for that album. I like the way you said it. Um, I, again, I love the live version more. Heard that one first. I think the energy captured in the live version is, is better. I've heard that this was heavily influenced by his, by Springsteen listening to the animals. Uh, don't let me be misunderstood at the mm-hmm. time. I find this song, you kind of touched on, again, going back to your intro. I think, you, you know, he's like a church gospel, you know, um, preacher kind of thing. I think this is his most punk sounding song with like, the, with the energy of James Brown in the Blues Brothers movie <laughs> kind of thing. Like, like I just see it like this. It's just this self-empowering kind of like stand up for, I mean, and Bruce does a lot of that. He really yeah. does. But I love the build up to each chorus, you know, and Weinberg's breaking down the drums as it goes right into the chorus, like the pre-chorus kind of parts to this. And the final verse after the sax, sax solo is just amazing. I also heard that Bruce has played this song live more than any other song except Born to Run. Huh. So I, I found that interesting. Um, the last thing I'm going to say about this, uh, it, I just think, you know, I, I never would have ever considered Bruce to be to write concept albums, not in the way that we kind of envision concept albums kind of thing, but, but he's very consistent with themes. And I guess that would be like born to run has a specific theme that kind of carries throughout with every song. Even if, even if each song is a different vignette about different characters or different Mm -hmm. scenes in a movie kind of thing, they're all thematically kind of similar. Darkness on the edge of town kind of has the same feel to me. It kind of, it kind of does. And so I think Springsteen's, and of course, you know, we heard, eventually everybody's heard that he wrote like 70 songs during this period where (laughs) during this three year hiatus, and a lot of songs he left off because they didn't match the theme that he wanted to create. So yeah. it's not necessarily a concept album, but thematically, the title, Darkness on the Edge of Town, is perfectly emblematic for what he created. 
I, I think, I mean, if I'm going to come up with a weird comparison, but I think I would, I would compare Born to Run is Star Wars and Darkness is The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. I totally see that. Absolutely. Good call. So uh, Born in the USA would be the Ewoks. In yes, it would. Dancing in the Dark is very yes. much the Ewoks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, was go- I was going to say, God, what's going to be Return of the Jedi? Yeah, it is absolutely Born in the USA. <laughs> it's absolutely Return of the Jedi. <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right all right what is your next song on the list okay the next song on my list i toyed with the idea of keeping this last because i wanted this is going to be i mentioned before thunder road was my second favorite song i'm going to go with my first favorite song my all-time favorite springsteen song and there's a reason i didn't want to end with this and i'll talk about it when i get to my final song on the list but my all-time favorite springsteen song is jungle land off of again born to run Probably, without a doubt, not probably. It's my all-time favorite Springsteen song. And it only occurred after I saw uh, a 1975 concert. Uh, there was a London concert from the Hammersmith Odeon, which people can find the, the whole concert on YouTube now. And it's professionally shot for a 1975 concert. It's professionally shot. It looks really good. And it's a full three-hour concert. But it was the first time that I actually, I think I actually saw the song and paid attention to it in its entirety. And... This is a long, epic kind of opus. It's, 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 you know, like what, nine, 10 minutes long, something like that. Um, I could easily talk about the song for an hour and it's going to be hard not to, but I'm not. But almost every aspect of the song is perfect. It's, it's like a mini opera. It's got three or four different movements throughout the, throughout the, throughout the song in and of itself it's catchy and beautiful in some parts it's loud and raucous and uplifting in others and honest to god i think it probably has the single greatest saxophone solo in history (laughs) i i I swear saxophone (laughs) careless whisper is like saying (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah no no this one trumps careless whisper um but the lyrical poetry in this is insanely good and i kind of and it's something weird about this this is the first this might be one of the first times that I recognize there's a lot of Shakespeare in Springsteen's lyrics mm. and not in the iambic pentameter way, but there are certain things. There's a line in the song that it caught me immediately where he goes beneath the giant Exxon sign that brings this fair city light. 
And I thought that is so Shakespeare. I was like, <laughs> I was like fair Verona, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, I just saw, and I was like, there's, and there's something about it. He sings songs about gang fights and drag races, but describes them as ball, uh, as ballets and operas. Kids flash guitars like switchblades. Yes. And then he says outside the streets on fire in a real death waltz. That stuff just dropped me to my knees. And I was like, I don't know anybody else that can write like this. And I mean, this, this could be a, this, this song itself could be like a Shakespeare play. It ends in tragedy. It's got some Romeo and Juliet or maybe even more like West Side Story. Yes. Kind of thing. Yep, yep. But it's literally like watching an entire movie or a musical in the span of 10 minutes. And this, it, 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 it captured everything that I loved about music and the way it makes you feel and the way it makes you think. And the lyrics don't overshadow the musicality because the musicality is so damn good. But the lyric you can't it's it's just it's it's just an epic song and it's by far my favorite Springsteen song of all time I'm pretty sure you looked at my notes because we were gonna say <laughs> the exact same thing um, I I didn't have this on my list because I knew you would because I knew this was one of your favorite this is but this would be in my top five Springsteen songs uh I I love this one of of all of his big sprawling epics I think this is by far the best it it is just so good you're right it's operatic there's a narrative there are clear characters like the rat and the barefoot girl um there's places and settings like as you said the Exxon sign there's a conflict it's a story that is just begging to be dramatized you could make a mini (laughs) movie of this or put it on the stage um and yeah i wrote down the exact i was i said this has some of his most evocative and poetic language and i literally i wrote down the lines kids flash guitars (laughs) and then outside the streets on fire in a real death waltz between what's flesh and what's fantasy it's incredible yeah yeah Yeah. um on on the aforementioned list this ranked number 13 of his top 100 oh bullshit (laughs) i think it's I think it is his underserved there, but yeah, yeah. I think that because Jackson Brown's a little jealous that he didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you got next? All right, next up is uh, we're going back to his very first album. It's not the leadoff song; it's the second song on his first album, "Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey." Uh, the song is "Growing Up." Well, I stood stone like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade. And I combed my hair that was just right And commanded the night brigade I was hoping the plane and crossed by the rain And I walked on a crooked crutch I strolled all along to a fall out zone Came out with my soul untouched I hid in the cloud and wrath of the crowd When they said sit down I stood up For me, this song is the sort of perfect distillation of his adolescence. It's all about defiance. It's the choruses. When they said, sit down, I stood up. When they said, come down, I threw up. When they said, pull down, I pulled up. It's the same kind of like hook every time, just that slight little variations. <laughs> um, this is probably in my top three songs for his. Um, I it was I, I I probably I probably came to that album pretty late, though, because uh, it's, it's maybe just within the last 10 years. Well, no, I, I think I, I – ah, gosh, I can't – my memory is betraying me. I can't remember if I heard the album version or the live version first. 
but I, I know when I heard the live version like this, one really like jumped out at me, and mm-hmm. I loved it. Just like the the driving piano sound, but also the guitar rock. It's just it's really really cool. I just I like the song. It, it just makes me feel young and and rebellious. Um, after I uh, graduated from college, I wrote this novel called Mister Smartass. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love that book. <laughs> And in, I, I had the story broken up into three parts, three sections. And for the beginning of each part, I, I opened it up with a, a quotation. Um, and the third and final section, I actually opened up with a quote from lyrics from this song. And it was from the first verse when he says, I was open to pain and crossed by the rain and I walked on a crooked crutch. I strolled all alone through a fallout zone and came out with my soul untouched. I hid in the clouded wrath of the crowd. But when they said, sit down, I I stood up again, just that, that feeling of youthful defiance, just giving the finger to like all, all of your, you know, sort of teenage, you know, yeah. and yeah. tensions and, and rules. It just, yeah, it is just the, the spirit to be, you know, one of the, his very first songs. Um, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it, it sort of sets the tone for where he was going in the next couple of years. Yeah. I love this song as well. I obviously, I'm going to say this repeatedly throughout the course of the show. Uh, I love the live version. That's the first version I heard. And I thought Mm -hmm. that that just kicked ass. Um, This song, you know, when you go back and listen to it chronologically in order of his albums, this song kind of announced Bruce as like an urban poet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Bruce has a tendency, he writes a lot of songs about third person characters in the present. And then he does a lot of songs that kind of like, he'll lead with like hopes and aspirations and stuff like that. You know, he's only written a handful to the best of my knowledge, kind of past tense songs. Like he does, you know, about his own personal memories and stuff. Mm -hmm. There are a couple, there are a couple and I've, I'll single out a couple, but this one, I, 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 this one kind of grabbed me as well as another one on my list, which I'm going to end the show with, which is kind of mirroring this one. I think there was something about, you know, that kind of like getting to a point in your life, looking back, seeing, you know, this type of stuff. I loved, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the poets, uh, some of the lyrical poetry that I had written down. The only one I, you didn't say that I had was I had a jukebox graduate for my first mate. (laughs) I I thought that whole metaphor about sailing was great is awesome. Um, This was an interesting album and I love this song. If I had to, get my wish i would have wished that the because the eastry the eastry band wasn't fully formed yet right. and you can hear it kind of lacking on this album and then bruce gets more control of his career and then brings all his friends in and then the band takes a more prominent role as they go forward i kind of would have loved to hear this album re-recorded maybe a couple albums later yeah but that's just nitpicking because when you hear the live version with the full band it that's it that you yes. get it that, yeah, that's the that's the promise that's the potential real yeah yeah and it's yeah. fulfilling it's absolutely fulfilling i'm, I'm happy with that so yeah. good call uh on the list that i mentioned uh this ranked number 48 of the 100 so still wow. in the top 50 yeah yeah it should be higher all right where do we go from there all right well going back to the east street band I like to rock out so I'm going to go with another long epic <laughs> monster song Rosalita off of Wild the Wild the Innocent and the East Street Shuffle She's on the 
Okay, Rosalita come out tonight. Again. <laughs> I first heard this song from the live 75 to 85 box set. And then there was even, I, I want to say, this is long before YouTube, but I did see a live concert performance of this at some point. I don't know if MTV was circulating a video of it or maybe VH1 or something. I honestly don't remember how I could have possibly seen it. But there was a, like a 10-minute Live performance. Maybe you do you have any idea? Do you rec- recall? Don't, I don't okay. know. No. Well, at some point, I saw a 10 minute live performance of Bruce Springsteen playing this song with the band. And a lot like Jungle Land, this, this is this has a it has a very tragic kind of love story in the theme. It's like a Romeo and Juliet again. It's about two parents, two lovers whose parents don't approve of them. And it's kind of this like this forbidden love kind of thing. At least that's the way I interpreted it. Um, the album. Well, the, this was off the Bruce's second album, and we—I mentioned this before a second ago. You know, again, the the key components of the E Street Band were now coming into play, but they really didn't fully join until the next album, Born to Run. So there's still a little bit lacking in terms of the full band's kind of identity, but. On this album, it's it's got a you know Bruce was still in this weird sort of beatnik East Coast jazz poetry kind of kind of phase. You know, he, he's singing about pimps and snakeskin jackets and stuff which he did on the first two albums there's a lot of weird like maybe they were doing acid or something at the time i don't know but there's a lot of weird like like uh, like east village new york stuff going on greenwich village type things but this was the quintessential jam band song and it showcases what would become the entire e street band to the best of their strengths even on this album i mean with the exception i do like e street shuffle which is a great, great song off of that. But it's a very jazz song yeah. from, from that first album. But this, if you were listening to Bruce, you know, you mentioned, you know, growing up kind of announced him as a poet. And then the next album, this comes out. This song kind of announced to me, this is just not Bruce Springsteen. This is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And that's kind of the way I interpreted it. And then this launches my infatuation with the band. Yeah, I, I don't listen to the album that often. Um, there, there aren't as many strong songs from this one, I don't think. But this song is just like one of the one of the all time greats, uh, and and I think probably be, shows the strength of the live performance and yep. when the band really comes together. Um, as with his songs, it, it's about youth and love and for, like this struggle for like sort of a, a young man's freedom, fighting like to this sort of oppressive nature from the parents and everything like that. Mm-hmm despite being this monster just rocker that just blows the door off the place when he plays it live like even not even just the live like the album version is this great thing yeah to me the song in spite of the lyrics it feels a little bit less um urgent than some of the other like rock songs they there seems to be more of this I, I don't know if it's just like the jazzy bluesy quality of it but it seems to be more kind of enjoying the life of this um sure yeah and i i yeah, maybe it kind of comes down to like Maybe it's like sort of like the lyrical bridge between the last verses when he says, your daddy says he knows I don't have any money. And then we'll, we'll tell him that this is his last chance to get his daughter in a fine romance because the record company, Rosie, just gave me a big advance. It's like <laughs> the ultimate screw you to your girlfriend's dad, disapproving dad. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. 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 I would just, just to piggyback on that. Again, I, I think you're right. I think they're, they're, like it doesn't feel like an important song. 
if that makes if that makes sense but this for me what gra- what grabbed me was this kind of showcases that this like just this this impromptu jazz blues band yeah and I, I hear i in a weird way for a lot of this stuff makes me feel like the blues brothers when i listen to this mm-hmm. album you know there's just something interesting about the horns the the piano the keys the the kind of funky rhythm guitar you know there's just a lot of that there's just some of yeah that's and that's it on the list, this was number 11, so just barely missed the top 10. I can see that. That works. All right. Next up, I've got the title track from the album Tunnel of Love. That man sitting on a little stool takes money from my hand while his eyes take a walk all over you. Hands me a ticket, smiles and whispers good luck. Well, cuddle up, angel, cuddle up, my little dog. remember hearing this song as a kid um you know this came out in 1987 so a couple of years after born in the usa um i remember liking it probably the first springsteen song that i do remember liking at the time that it was popular um it it is a song about a relationship it's a song about a marriage basically that seems like everything ought to be simple but uh, <laughs> yeah. it turns out it's much more complicated than that. And it's easy to get lost and to screw things up. And uh, there's all these kind of fun obstacles. So he uses this sort of carnival fun house as this, as the metaphor for all of the mm-hmm. problems. And because the album, in this case, Tunnel of Love was basically his divorce album. Yeah. Um, which that could, I mean, that in itself could be a topic for an episode, like best, like divorce, songs, <laughs> divorce albums. Um, I could finally talk about some Beck songs that I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I think this album shows a sort of maturity of his songwriting. It's less about that youth and more, I mean, just because of where he was coming in, in his biographies, he's more grown up. There's a little bit more pragmatism. Um, I love the lyrics, you know, when he says the lights go out and it's just the three of us, you and yeah. me and all the stuff we're so scared of. Just, oh God. Yeah. The way that comes together. It's, it's great. I just, yeah, I, I do like this whole album, um, especially, and we'll, we'll mention it later. Cause it was a song that came up from a couple of our fans listening to the song, brilliant disguise, um, which was the lead single from this one. I, I, could have easily swapped that one out for this song, but I think mm. I just, I like this one more as a kid. Um, the album, this album and born in the USA have the same problem for me, uh, which is that I think they wear their age on their sleeve. They sound very dated to me because of the synths and also just like the production sound that Bruce mm-hmm. and John Landau went for. Um, and how you mentioned that you wished, you know, like he, he would have re-recorded his first album right. a couple of years later. I kind of wish they had recorded these same albums, these same songs a couple of years earlier, maybe yeah, <laughs> or, or yeah. later on. Like if, if uh, born in the USA and tunnel of love had been recorded in 1979, um, I, I think I would have liked the, the, 
the sound a little bit more. Um, I, I do like these, but it's just that they, when I hear this song, I was like, yeah, there's an eighties one. Just this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot more to say about that. I, I do remember when this came, what, what did this come? 87? 87. 87. I remember that. And I remember this was, I, I, I remember being excited about this song because dad taught me how to play it on the guitar. And it was like, I was like, Oh, I can play like Nils Lofgren's part and all this stuff. And I was like, so I was like, that's pretty cool. So of course I started to like it. Cause I was just learning how it was like, well, Hey, I can play one song. So I like that. I don't think I got the metaphor for a while until like dad kind of like, you know, told me basically, you know, this, everything that you said, which this is a divorce song. This is, this is sad. This is really, and then you and then I start looking at the lyrics and I start reading them. You mentioned the, the perfect lyric for this, which is you mean all the stuff we're so scared of, you know, and then that, that kind of resignation where he goes, learn to live with what you can't rise above. Yeah. Like yeah. there's something about that, that I don't think I, I appreciated the lyrics to these song to this song when it came out as I've gotten older, that stuff kind of hits me. It haunts me a little more, you know, like those lyrics, that's powerful. That's deep and it's dark and it makes you feel vulnerable. And there's something about that. And this was, you know, this, one of the things that you, you mentioned this being a divorce album, you know, this was a really interesting album because Bruce wrote a lot of first person songs during this period mm-hmm. instead of about these other characters. So it's, you feel like you're reading his diary now. You know, yeah. um, and that's something that just it's so I, I, I kind of echo your sentiment about the sound of the album doesn't really do much for me now. Like, they, you know, I would leave it off my list because of the sound. But aside from that, strip it down and go down to the bare bones of the song and what he's talking about. It's really powerful. So I'm glad you put it on the list. Yeah, uh, it was number 26 on the other list. Damn. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, hit us with number seven on our list. What do you got? (laughs) All right, for number seven, I'm going to go back to the anniversary album that we're talking about, Born to Run, and I'm going to talk about probably one of the lesser-known songs from the album, Night. This one, this one was a toss-up because when I, we were making our lists, um, I, I honestly was going to come with one of two songs from this album that was going to just barely make the cut. It was either this or She's the One. Both of them I could have talked endlessly about. I love both, but I had to choose one. So I'll tell you why I went with this one instead of the other. First of all, both of these songs, a lot of this, a lot of this album reminds me of Eddie and the Cruisers, the movie, <laughs> like the band <laughs> yeah. Eddie and the Cruisers. It really does. Like all these piano intros and then go into like these 60 kind of, these 60s East Coast, you know, Jersey Shore rock bands kind of thing. It really sounds like that to me. I'm I sure that was deliberate on the part of the movie. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's interesting. Not the other way around. <laughs> but I, I chose this one for one specific reason. 
the chord progression in the chorus to this song is so interesting musically. It's not supposed to work, and it does. And what I mean is, if, for anybody listening, and I hope we play a sound clip of it, it's not it's not like your standard three or four chord major chord arrangement, which most choruses have with like a resolution at the end that comes back to one kind of thing. Each stanza ends with minor chords in this, and it's very interesting musically. And it kind of creates tension and like minor chords have a, have a tendency to feel like something's unresolved. Something doesn't feel right. And this is in the chorus and it's the end of the chorus. So it's really strange musically, but it works with this beautiful imagery, but it just kind of, I don't know. It's a, it's a great love story. It's got beautiful imagery and you're in love with all the wonder it brings and every muscle in your body sings as the highway ignites. Like this isn't a sad song. This isn't like a song about hopelessness and despair and all the stuff. This is, this is beautiful. Beautiful. And he wrote a love song. And that's kind of that's that for that. She's the one I could have easily had and described that. But for just the musicality and the interestingness of the chord progression in the chorus, I went with this one. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you did because this is probably a song that I, I tend to forget sometimes. But I'm glad I think I most people back. do. Yeah. I'm glad I came back and listened to this again. And, and you know, looking at, like, the, the story that he's telling and everything, how precious that time away from work is. Yeah. And I, may, I remember, you know, my first jobs or, or the crummy jobs when you just – you just can't wait to get away. And that what the night means, mm-hmm. just like that, <laughs> yeah. that release from the confines of work, it's, it's like a form of ecstasy. It's sexual. And it is yeah. this, this love note to that feeling, that, that just concept. So, yeah, glad you put this one on your list. Yeah. <laughs> cool. What you got next? Uh, all right. Oh, oh that was uh, 81 on Rolling Stones list. So they had it much lower. But uh, I, I expected that. I'm surprised you made the list, to be honest with you. Yeah. All right, for my next song, I am going once again with a, a lead-off track, the first <laughs> song from the album Nebraska. I saw her standing on her front lawn Just a twirling her baton Me and her went for a people there from a town of Lincoln, Nebraska with a sawed off 14 on my lap through the badlands of Wyoming I killed it All right, for the first time in his career, I think Springsteen was no longer writing kind of autobiographically. He wasn't telling like the same stories that he grew. He wasn't writing necessarily from his heart or, or aspirationally. He's recreating a piece of American history. And for the whole album, he is trying to capture this feeling of isolation and detachment uh, and kind of what was going on in society. Uh, this song in particular is written from the perspective of a 1950s serial killer <laughs> named Charles Starkweather, uh, who you might hear got a name drop in uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. Um, <laughs> Charles Starkweather, who along with his 14-year-old girlfriend, uh, Carol Ann Fugate, they killed 11 people. 
uh, between the states of Nebraska and Wyoming. And the first time I heard the song, uh, it reminded me of the movie Natural Born Killers, pretty obviously. (laughs) Um, I had been reading a book called Killer on the Road by James Elroy. Um, The song itself is influenced by the movie The Badlands um, by who directed Terrence Malick as well as a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find, uh, written by Flannery O'Connor, which I read many, many times because I took many, many creative writing courses in college. You're just name dropping now. I, I am, really, yeah. Um, he wrote and recorded the whole, a whole series of song demos, basically, for this album, and then brought them to the band. And, and he and uh, John Landa, the producer, they felt that some of the songs worked better with the band, and those actually became tracks for Born in the USA. But as I said a few of the songs, a handful of them, they just they weren't clicking with the band. They worked better just as the demos. Like they, they just striped up version of with him and the acoustic and a few minor uh, musical like accompaniments, and that became the spine of Nebraska. This album. So I, I just I don't know. I just as I mentioned, like there is like in my headspace, you know, listening to this, mm-hmm. this was the sound and. I love how sparse the vocals and the acoustic song are. There's this haunting quality, this echo and emptiness. It sounds like he's all alone in this empty theater or a church. Um, and it, God, you're reading, you're, these are exactly the things I was going to say. <laughs> um, this was another one where I could have picked any number of songs from this album, from this album. Um, and, and strangely, I mean, like I, I kind of came to it like this, this album would be in my top three albums uh, by Bruce Springsteen, but I only included the one song from it because for me, the album is more of a, a whole experience where the songs kind of bleed and gel together. Yeah. Um, they don't it. necessarily jump out at me the way some of the other like rock songs on his other albums do. I, I kind of see it as a whole piece. So it's hard for me to separate the song. So this was really just picking one as a representative of the album for me. Uh, and the song is number 14 on Rolling Stones list. Yeah, well, it should be that high. I, I agree with that. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, you basically stole my own notes for what the <laughs> stuff I was going to talk about, the things specifically that I liked about it and why I found it fascinating. You touched on all of them. So the only thing I have left to kind of add is I appreciate, and I think I may have talked about this with other podcasts that we've done, but I always appreciate an artist taking risks and making, making a statement by making a departure from previous works and stuff, not recreating the cookie cutter image that their fans expect. I appreciate that. We like artists like Neil Young who does that, like Prince who does that, like the Smashing Pumpkins who do that. I like an artist that's not afraid to deviate from their proven successes uh, especially after a big successful monster album to then strip it all back and do so like I, I so that I just think that it's just a fascinating album um it would let me ask you that I don't know this is this an E Street Band album or is it just Bruce Springsteen no it's it's credit is just Bruce Springsteen I think okay. a few I think a few members of the band might play occasional it's accompanying him on the album, but it's not credited as an Eastern. Okay. I might be confusing that with the ghost of Tom Joad. Cause that's, that's how it is on Tom Joad where I think, okay. yeah, I think I, yeah, some I, of the, some of the bands play a, a few bit parts in that, but it's not, he didn't record it with the band. 
Right, right. And I did know that. I did know, like you said, that, um, you know, they're, they had a lot of material that the band, it just didn't click with them. So yeah. they, I, this is probably still credited to the East Street Band, mm-hmm. even though they had very little to do with it. But either way, either way, it doesn't matter. I, I just find it, it's a it's a fascinating album. And I think you're right. The I think the sum of the parts works better on the whole than, you know, there's something about when you listen to it, you kind of got to take it all in at once. Mm-hmm. All right. From there we go to. Um, well, I'm going to bring the whole band back. <laughs> I'm going to do. I'm going back to Born to Run again. Tenth uh, Avenue Freeze Out. on the city bed, searching for his groove. one uh for the sparseness and and alone in the quiet theater thing that you just talked about with nebraska this is the exact opposite (laughs) this is this song kind of is i I find it kind of loosely autobiographical Uh, you know it feels like the he's describing the forming of the e street band i always kind of assumed that when he talks about bad scooter I thought that was Bruce. I thought he was talking about himself, and maybe it was just because the initials were BS. I don't know if that's true. I know he was talking about the big man joining the band as Clarence Clemens, so I just kind of assumed that it was just an autobiographical piece. Um, I think this is really cool. I love the song. I heard apparently the whole horn section in the intro was written by Lil Steven. Believe (laughs) it or not. I I found that crazy. I'm like, oh, my God, Miami Steve Van Zandt. That's awesome. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than it's a really fun, great jam band song. And I don't even know what it means. I don't know if 10th Avenue freeze out was like a dance craze on the, on the, you know, on East street or on the Jersey shore or something, but this kind of like Rosalita, which, you know, again, I love the instrumental parts to the song. I like the poetry that Bruce brings, but they're just fun songs. They're not overly important. They're not statements. It's just a fun song, but I couldn't imagine him doing the, not doing this in a concert. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I and I love it too, and and not for any like greater, deeper meaning because I don't think there is. I think you're right. It is basically just the song is about the formation of the band of them coming together. I have heard that Bad Scooter is supposed to be Bruce Springsteen. That is like the stand-in okay. for him. Cool. Um, I like maybe. I mean, there might be an argument against that, but that's what I've heard. Um, I also heard that uh, Van Zandt like arranged the horn section. <laughs> now, what <laughs> I also awesome. heard was at the time that they were recording the album, Van Zandt wasn't part of the band. He like wasn't in the band at the time, so he was just hanging around the studio. Well, he, he had been in he had been in one of Bruce Springsteen's first bands. I think yeah, actually before they did his first album and everything like that, like, <laughs> just, like playing around in, in Jersey somewhere, they were in a band together. But at the time he, he might've just been hanging out in the studio or they were friends or collaborating. So he kind of just like lent a hand to help out on a few parts of this, of the, of the album, this song, but wasn't really part of it. And then he joined the band when they went on tour for the album. That's uh, amazing. 
I, I, I know for a fact, because I remember this from the Eastry Band's Hall of Fame acceptance speech, I know for a fact that during the period where Lil Steven did leave the band officially, like mm-hmm. a 10 year gap where he left the band, he was still helping Bruce with the demos. Yeah. Like Bruce was still sending him demos and Stevie was still like helping produce and arrange things for him and stuff. So whatever grievances they had during this period where they kind of lost touch and then broke up a little bit, um, I, I, it's, <laughs> I think it's, that's just really funny that he was just, like, that makes perfect sense now that he wasn't even the band, but he's like, he's like one of those guys that just won't go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, as much as we said, it's just kind of like a simple, just a fun rock. Song. It was number 20 on the Rolling Stones list. So it was still, you know, it, it's still a great one. It's something that people keep coming back to and wanting to play. Awesome. So. All right. From there, we go to uh, my last song for this first half. We're at number 10 now. Uh, and is our first song from the river. It is the song Stolen Car. I met a little girl and I settled down in a little house out on the edge of town. We got married and swore we'd never part. Then little by first heard this song in the movie Copland and it became one of my favorites and it still is to this day it's my top three songs it portrays the end of a marriage uh, a man driving in this car feeling alienated and he's disconnected from his own life his family his sense of identity and he's just driving away into nothingness the lyrics sort of tell the story of you know we I met a little girl we settled down and then the ceiling of restlessness where he's not together um some of my absolute favorite lyrics that he's ever written, possibly my favorite set of lyrics he's ever written are in this in the third verse. Uh, he sings, she asked if I remembered the letters I wrote when our love was young and bold. She said last night she read those letters and they made her feel 100 years old. Oh, um, that just the, the, the authenticity of that just kills me. Um, he, he said it was just the stolen car is, He's, he's driving away and he, he wants to get caught. He wants to kind of get caught to, to feel like he's, to realize like who he is, that he's still there, that he isn't just kind of fading away into nothing. I have always kind of taken a different impression of the song's meaning, um, more than what the critics have kind of described it. To me, the stolen car part is not literal. It's a figurative uh, expression, but it's still consequential. To me, it feels like, 
the narrator feels like he's he's driving a stolen car because he has committed a crime or in this case a sin and what i took it as an infidelity oh the ruin of this relationship the fading away of love has caused him to step out and sleep with someone else um, possibly over a, a period of time because he says he does this every night. He sings, each night I wait to get caught, but I never do. Wow. Because that, that would at least force a confrontation with the wife that he no longer even speaks to or does anything with. Wow, that's interesting. I had never thought of it that way. Uh, that's really deep and very insightful, and now I need to listen to the song again. I... I don't know if you uh, tell me if this makes any sense to you. I always kind of you, you what you described, if you take it in the literal sense uh, as the narrator describing this, I always took this to be kind of like a Chuck Palahniuk fight club kind of thing. Mm. Like I felt like this is a guy that will do anything to feel alive. That type of thing, like whether it's commit a crime, whether it's get caught, whether it's start a fight, murder somebody, you know, do something about that was like somebody that is so devoid of feeling, they'll do anything to feel. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's kind of what moved me most in this song. And... I think, uh, you know, I've, I've heard different versions of the song played live. I've heard, you know, with a band, without a band, stuff like that. I, I just, I thought this was, yeah, that was, that was my connection to it. I think, it, it, you know, it I was. Think, I think your interpretation is better supported by the lyrics. And I, I think that actually, that sounds a bit more right. Like, like so I'm dumber. <laughs> no, no. I was, like uh, the, like, I mean, my, my bringing like this, this sort of phantom infidelity angle to it is not necessarily like supported by anything that he actually writes in that. That's just something that I kind of brought to it. I, and I don't know where that came from. Um, but yeah, very interesting. I think they both come from the sense of that, that, detachment and needing yeah, yeah. to and, and, yeah. and maybe maybe i just wanted to name drop a book too so i sound smart <laughs> like you you know stupid books <laughs> but yeah th- th- that's all and I, th- I think it was really you know this obviously came during his maybe his least optimistic phase you know yeah. i would say between like the river and nebraska and stuff um but this has i think you use the phrase haunting and i kind of felt that too mm-hmm. um so for you know, we both had different interpretations of the song, but it still kind of it moved me equally. So, good choice. Yeah. Where's this? On the, where? I was going to say, Fight Club is not one of the five books you've ever read. <laughs> it's not. I've never read the book. <laughs> uh, this was number twenty-five on the Rolling Stone list. Huh, okay. I know. I mean, I'm actually. I mean, for for a song that I always felt was kind of obscure. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite, but I I didn't think anybody else really knew about this, despite it being in that movie. So I'm happy that it's up as high as twenty-five. I would have. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty good. All right, folks, we are halfway through our lists, uh, which means <laughs> only halfway. So we are going to take a break right here, play some podcast promos for other shows. Uh, but we will be back in just a few minutes with uh, some shout outs to our fine listeners and at least 10 more songs to talk about. Don't go Better half. <laughs> Better half. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. <laughs> This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. Okay. Are you going to make a, a new intro for this? I'm here to talk about one song, so here I go. Welcome to One Song Each. This podcast is going into a song. Whoever's with us, but usually the three of us, Diablo Frank. Illegal Machine, Mr. Fixit. We're going to take a few minutes to talk about a song. One song. Each of us will bring one song to the table. So we're just going to pick a song and talk about it. Choose a random song without consulting the others and without picking a theme. 
no themes. Except for the times when we'll pick a theme. Well, we'll tell you if we're going to pick But generally speaking. Sometimes we talk about the artist's career overall. Sometimes we talk about a particular album. You can either be technical or more intimate. There's no prescribed link. There's no prescribed content. Randomly pulled from our brains. Do you play the song itself? And we play the song for each other and then comment with a story, an anecdote. The actual meaning of the song or more history. Either what the song means to them or a life experience that that was the soundtrack to. What it triggers in your memory. All right, you guys want to hear my song? I think it's probably one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. I'm in the middle of this parking lot and I just start dancing. It sort of became our song. I will never in my life forget that performance. I want to talk about what I think is the greatest American love song. Do you like good music? If you don't love the blues, you have a hole in your soul. What happens when we rap about like the actual world and people are like, what? But because of the mood of the song, it made me feel sad. I felt this melancholy. And even after the song was over with, that melancholy stayed with me. After that, every time I got in any kind of relationship and the girl would break my heart, this is the song I'd crawl back to. This is a World's Fine podcast. That's one song each, and it's a very interesting concept. Primarily as a singer or as a poet? I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. You may call him Alias. You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. All right, we are back with our boss-sized tribute to the music of Bruce Springsteen. And before we jump into our uh, side B, the, the next selection of songs, uh, we wanted to do something uh, as as a because honestly, it, it, like it took us a long time to cut to pair down these oh, ten God, songs. Yes. I mean, up to and including <laughs> yesterday, I swapped out one of my songs. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I, thanks I, a lot, dude. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to be able to mention and reference as many songs as possible, and and I knew that we would get a lot of feedback because this is such a popular artist. So we actually acted preemptively, and on Facebook and Twitter, we asked some of our listeners, "What are your favorite Bruce Springsteen songs?" And we got a really good selection, a pretty diverse group from some of our listeners. So first up, buddy Kyle Benning. Uh, he, he admitted, he said, my picks are kind of boring, um, but he said both <laughs> Glory Days and Born in the USA. 
which was fun. I, I we should mention too, like Glory Days was a fantastic video. It came out. It was a. I I just remember that song being on MTV like nonstop. I mm-hmm. loved it, and I remember thinking, "What's wrong with Little Steven in that video? <laughs> like, like is he having a seizure when he's singing with Bruce? I couldn't figure it out. But good song choice. Uh, our buddy Doctor Ange, he had a he had a couple of songs. He picked Thunder Road, which we've talked about. Yes. Uh, no surrender. Jungle Land, which we've also talked about, yes. and Tunnel of Love, which we've also talked about. <laughs> All right. I like this guy. Yeah. Uh, Tom Paneris, who has appeared on uh, the podcast before, he had, a, he had a couple. He gave us a whole like list, and he said a lot of these are <laughs> lesser known. They're not quite as popular. He also mentioned the song No Surrender. Uh, he said it's hard to be a saint in the city, which I think that's the last song on the first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said One Step Up, which is also one of my favorite songs on the album, Tunnel of Love. Uh, he picked Rosalita, uh, the song The Rising. Uh, so, like, the oh, yeah. yeah. Wow, that was a good song choice. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Janie, Don't Lose Your Heart. I think that's an unreleased track. I want to say that was only available on the tracks box set. I don't remember if that was on an album. I got to be honest with you. It doesn't ring a bell right now. I, I mean, I'm sure I've heard it because I, I've listened to 18 tracks, that album, but I... I this song doesn't ring a bell. So I think that was Kudos. just on the tracks boosted. Like, I think that was an unreleased one. I think, um, then he said, uh, brothers under the bridge, which we actually, we talked about this one just <laughs> we, the other day. We texted back. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to mention. Yeah. This is really interesting because I don't mean to knock the song at all in any possible way. I went, I, as we were preparing for the show, I listened to it and I swear to God, the chorus is identical to secret garden from the Jerry Maguire soundtrack. I mean, identical. Mm-hmm. So, so the thing was, this was another one that was unreleased. So I think he probably liked that melody, that, that hook for that chorus. And instead of using it for this one, because he didn't know if this song would ever show up on an album, he just recycled it for the song that he put on the greatest, because well, Secret Garden was originally on the, the greatest hits uh, uh, collection. It was like the first original one. And then within a year, it was also in Jerry Maguire. Now, I want to point out really quick, and I may be wrong about this, but I'm 90% sure so people can fact check me if they want. But I believe he recycled the title Brothers Under the Bridge because that was the working title of the song No Surrender. Hmm. I think I'm 90% sure that was going to be the title. Ah, that'd be interesting. I like that. Uh, Tom also mentioned the songs Crush on You, Long Time Coming, Jungle Land, which we've also talked about. And the last song that Tom mentioned, he gave an honorable mention to Because the Night. Uh, which was- <laughs> Was a song that, that Springsteen wrote. He wrote the music for it, and I think Patti Smith, mo- she heard him playing like the demo of it or something, and she took it and rewrote a lot of the lyrics uh, because it became popular as a Patti Smith song. And I think, I think it's a case where the lyrics on the Patti Smith version are like seventy-five percent hers, twenty-five percent Bruce's. That sounds about right. Um, and then Natalie Merchant also covered a version of it. Uh, he gave credit to their version of it. I love the live version of Because the Night. That was on that live. Me too. I always thought it was great. He actually eventually did a stu- or released a studio version of the song not too long ago. Was it on 18 tracks? It might have no. It was on it was on a recent album. I think it was on the album The Promise, which was like a collection of unreleased oh, right, right. stuff that he yeah. finally got around to. I think yep. that but that, that was like that was like eight years ago, I think. So, you know, he had that song forever. Um, yeah. but I almost included the live version of Because of the Night on my list. I came close. Um, okay, a few other people. Uh Herman Lowe from the podcast Into the Weird, he it mentioned the songs Cover Me 
downbound Ooh. train and stolen car. Okay. I love his first two choices. Again, um, on the live 75 to 85 box set, I remember hearing those. I remember downbound train, I, I know for a fact, but I, I remember being kind of cover me was a really powerful, powerful, like stadium rock song. That one, that one really grabbed me. So mm-hmm. not, not quite high enough to make my list, but I'm glad he brought that up because I've honestly kind of forgotten about it. Yeah. And damn, that was a, that was a uh, uh, kind of song. Oh, uh, somebody with the, uh, the Twitter handle baby Skeletor. I love that. That is awesome. <laughs> he said, born in the USA, born to run, brilliant disguise, I'm on fire, and pink Cadillac. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, one of those we will be talking about later on. So, Yeah, I, I, I want to talk more about baby Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you, that, that's one thing. The next guy, Mike Jameson, whose Twitter handle is this lightsaber kills fascists, which is... <laughs> <laughs> so uh he picked nebraska so good good shout good. out there uh roger preby picked the entire album born to run so yeah yep. we're, we got that covered you know what i almost did too so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right um david ace gutierrez picked two of them one the song easy money that's a pretty recent song i'm surprised he would go with that one i think that was on did fastball what? cover it very probably probably either that or he's confusing it with the song but the billy joel song yeah. <laughs> or it was in a highlander movie there you go it could have been um and the other song he picked was i'm going down which is one of my favorites from uh born in the usa i like that song a lot <laughs> uh chris franklin said brilliant disguise and i'm on fire good choices rick heineken also chose i'm on fire uh john schaefer hames picked radio nowhere which is a really great rock yeah, song yeah from one it of his is new realms. that was um with a grungy guitar part that's kind yeah, of that kind yeah. of ventures outside of the springsteen norm yeah yeah it is uh which what album was that it wasn't magic was it no it was i can't remember the the, name, the album that was on but that was one of like was that know, on the same album with 57 channels like that was or was I that think later so. that was that was just like in the last 10 years or something but radio yeah, nowhere is a great rock hood. yeah 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 he's still yeah that actually that kind of proves that he can like age well with the times too because that was a very modern rock song yeah yeah uh two more gold tolton said cadillac ranch and then the aforementioned rich matsumoto uh picked back streets from born to run well, one of the few Born to Run songs that we're not talking about. Uh, so give it a shout <laughs> I out. easily could. I easily could. Uh, Racing in the Street from Darkness on the Edge of Town, The Price You Pay from the River, and My Father's oh. House from Nebraska. So good good songs, all of them. Yeah, yeah. Good deep album cuts, too. You know what? I, I really appreciate it. Shout out to all our listeners who actually did participate in this um, by giving the feedback and stuff like that. Cause it, honestly, it's, it's, it's fun to hear your feedback and know that people are actually paying attention and want to hear us talk about some of these things, but also you helped us kind of rediscover Like this, this is fun to kind of go back. I'm going to go back and revisit some of these songs that people have talked about that maybe mm-hmm. I haven't heard before or, or paid attention to a lot. So, you, you know, that we do this, obviously the, you know, Ryan and I could have these discussions just amongst ourselves, whether we're recording or not, but we do it for the fans. We want to have listening feedback and whatnot. So I think it's amazing that some of these people have, have, you know, have a love of Bruce and have gone, they've kind of challenged us with some deep album cuts. Those we, are pretty I mean, cool. We, we spent like 37 years having these conversations without podcasts. Like what were we wasting our time then for? <laughs> I know. I know. If you're not getting paid for it, why do it? I, I wasted most of my good stuff back in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, all these are warm-ups for the second half. 
By the way, we should also we should I should point out before we go back into our list, I got to point out two things. Number one, you mentioned this in the opening, and I forgot to draw attention to it. You're almost forty now. Oh my god, it sucks, <laughs> dude. You're like almost as old as the river. <laughs> Almost. Almost. (laughs) Um, And the other thing, I don't know if you recall this, but it's worth mentioning and it's fun for all people out for people older than you that are listening. When we say boss sized podcasts or boss sized episode, I don't, there was a period of time where boss was an adjective to describe something really cool in the eighties. And Ryan, I don't know if you ever remember that. I think that might be before your time, but when people were like, Oh my God, that's so boss. That was a thing that meant like awesome or radical or tubular or something. I remember but, that. Yeah, I remember. Okay, absolutely. good. I'm glad you remember it because my very first band was, uh, I was in third grade. And nobody could play an instrument, but it was like the kids sitting next to me in homeroom decided we were starting a band. And I think it was, God, I'm trying to, if memory serves, the the name of the band was Rapid Fire, and we spelled it in the same font that Def Leppard used. (laughs) Um, So I wrote a song, my very first song. In third grade, I wrote about all the girls in our class that we thought were cute. And I was like, Jenny is, and the crowd would go, boss. And then... Like Amy is boss, and that 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 was the lyrics to the song. But I'm, I'm pointing. My very first song was "Boss." She's boss, and I think it's just really cool that we're you know I, I for people that I don't know if anybody's going to remember that, but that was an actual. I now that we talk about it, I can't believe that was a power. That was an adjective I used all the time. I was like, oh man, that's boss. <laughs> I've, I've definitely heard the term before. I remember it a lot in the 80s. I've never heard that song before. Um, no, no, nor should you. <laughs> you know what? If Bruce can reach deep back into the unreleased archives for, the, for that Promise album and, and bring some of the stuff back, I think you can too. Well, I just discovered today a ghost album of mine on my hard drive that I didn't even know I started recording over 10, 15 years ago. So <laughs> maybe she's boss is on there. <laughs> could be, could be. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> all righty let us get back into our list then uh I, i'm gonna start off this side and um we're we're going with a a song that is a lot more topical than i wish it was oh god yeah, <laughs> yeah. and this is the song american skin 41 shots which debuted in live in new york city 41 shots and we'll take that ride Cross this bloody river To the other side Forty-one shots Cut through the night You're kneeling over his body In the vestibule Praying is well, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret. It ain't no secret. No secret, my friend. You get killed just for living in your American skin. As Bruce kind of aged out and grew up, you know, his his lyrics became 
a little bit more, you know, less autobiographical, less aspirational. And he did sort of write about societal issues uh, and things that mm-hmm. appealed to him, issues of social justice. And this one is definitely probably the, the, the cornerstone of that. This song is written about the police shooting of Amado Diallo in 1999, who was shot 41 times, um, which seems excessive. Um, <laughs> uh, he debuted this song in concerts the following year, and then he would close out uh, the live in New York City concert at Madison Square Garden with this one. Uh, it is a powerful social commentary that, as I said, is sadly it was considered controversial uh, at the time. And now it's like, yeah, he could write the song for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, yeah. Fernando Castile, yeah. Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Botham Jean, Tamir Rice. Yeah. Like there's just, there's an endless list. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I think in, in one of the verses he sings 41 shots, uh, lady gets her son ready for school. She oh, says, on these streets, child, you've got to understand the rules. If an officer stops you, promise you'll always be polite and that you'll never, ever run away. Promise, mama, you'll keep your hands in sight. Um, it, I mean, lyrically, it's, it, it's, it's messed up. And it's, it just makes you, it makes me mad thinking about it and what's going on and the reason why we have protests uh, and yeah. going on in our streets right now and and how nothing got better in the time since then. Um, but also just musically, um, the way he does the song, the live version, it's just like this slow, just build. It's mm-hmm. like a heartbeat and, and kind of blood rushing um, and just the group kind of everybody singing together with him at the end. It's, it's, it's a powerful song and it's, it shows his, his relevance, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I, I believe if memory serves, I think he won like an NAACP humanitarian award for the song. I think, I think it was like an award, like that was, it was that, that powerful in terms of social commentary. Mm-hmm. They awarded him. Yeah. I, I really don't have anything else to add to it other than, I agree with you in the sense that I, when I saw the live in New York City concert, and this is kind of like that moment, like all the lights are down mm-hmm. except on him. And then as the band starts to sing the 41 shots refrain, like spotlights come up on each end of, oh my God, it's just, it's, it's a moving, moving, powerful piece. Right. And that's, uh, that's, I mean, it's so relevant. I'm glad you put it on this list. I wish it wasn't relevant. And, <laughs> That's. I guess I'll leave it at that. Uh, it still ranked. It was a uh, number sixty-four on Rolling Stone's list of his top one hundred. So, all right, move into something else. All right. Well, let's stay with depression. <laughs> let's go <laughs> with. <laughs> I'm going to go back to uh, the album you've mentioned earlier, "Darkness on the Edge of Town." I'm going to go with "Racing in the Street." I got a '69 Chevy with a '396 fuely heads and her hearse on the floor She's waiting tonight down in the parking lot Outside the 7-Eleven store Me and my partner Sonny built her straight out of scratch And he rides with me from town to town We only run Got no strings attached We shut them up And then we shut them down Tonight, tonight The strip's just right 
time is right for racing in the street. This another racing the street was another one of the many many car songs that or songs about a dreamer in a dead end job looking to get out. I mean, he Bruce has a knack for this. This is his this is his bread and butter. There's something about this song I really like. I, the key change for the instrumental break, like where it, it goes into a different key, and then it, like there's something about this song that gets me in the feels. It's kind of interesting. And this this song appeals to me a lot more as a musician. Like a lot of his stuff appeals to me as a poet. Uh, you know, as a lyricist, this song—it's—it's it's kind of the music that drives this song for me. It's weird because I remember when I first discovered this song, the first two verses confused me because I always remembered feeling like why it's—it's it's a sad ballad-sounding song, but the first for the first verses and the chorus are literally like happy and nostalgic, and <laughs> like sing it like it. Remember, confusing me, but then you get to the second half of the song after the musical break where he talks about winning the girl and only have time pass. And then they realize they're both miserable. And then, then it, then it kind of like all of a sudden the, the lyrics connect to the weight of the music. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I was. So this is like, then, then it kind of stuck with me. I'm like, Oh, I get it. Okay. I get it now. And it's just this big kind of statement kind of thing about time passing and like the things you, the things you, you know, the the trophies you win as a kid mean nothing to you as an adult kind of thing. And it's just, I don't know, there's just a lot going on with this song, but that's, that's why I, I, I musically it's beautiful and I love listening to it. Yeah, I do too. Um, and I, I picked up on the same thing, like from the title, and the lyrics in like the first part of the song, I was like, this sounds like, like, why doesn't this sound like born to run? It's seems yeah, like it, right. you're, you're capturing that feel. It seems like it, it could have been on that album. If you just sure. picked up an electric guitar and like, and tried something, but yeah, the music, the piano, it, it has this somber ballad to it. And it, he, he takes those same familiar themes and puts a dark cast over it. And you, this, by the end of it, you know, the, the song, the story is a lot more tragic. He, the characters are, are doomed, you know, in, in a sense. Um, and it's, it, it's very, very cool. And, and I don't think we have to say much more about it because on the aforementioned list, this was number four over their all time list. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So far I'm kicking your ass. <laughs> just kidding. No, the one thing I will add to it though, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to, uh, again, go back to something you said earlier when talking about this album as a whole about, if born to run is, you know, leaving town and venturing off or however you said it. And then darkness on the edge of town is stopping to turn around kind of thing. I almost feel like this song could be very well be about the characters in born to run later on in life. A few years later. Yeah. 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 Great. All right. For the next one, I am going with the ghost of Tom Jode, which was the fleet off track from the album, the ghost of Tom Jode. However, I'm giving you a slightly different version, a version <laughs> that I only discovered recently when prepping for this one. Um, I knew that the band rage against the machine had done a cover version of this song a long time ago, but I just found that during the magic tour that he did, Bruce Springsteen recorded a live version of the song with Tom Morello from Rage. Uh, so that is the version that I'm really going to be signaling. So this is The Ghost of Tom Joad by Bruce Springsteen with Tom Morello. Searching for the ghost of Tom. Rebel 
Lord God of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box beneath the underpass You got a one-way ticket to the promised land You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand Sleeping on a pillow, solid rock Bathing in the city's aqueduct How long is alive tonight? Where it's headed, everybody knows I'm sitting down here in the campfire light Working on the ghost of Tom Jones I'm going to backtrack to something that I teased in my intro at the beginning of this episode, which was that I knew the name Tom Jode from something, but I didn't know what. And I hadn't read the book, The Grapes of Wrath. I hadn't actually seen the entire movie yet. Wow. But I remembered the movie, The Dream Team with Michael Keaton, <laughs> <laughs> with Michael Keaton and Christopher Lloyd. Oh and, and, um, uh, uh God, who is, uh, Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle. That was the other one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Peter Boyle. And and then those guys and one other, they were in a mental institution. And they go on this field trip and their doctor is attacked and they have to like kind of... Oh Can we do a podcast about that movie? <laughs> we should. It's so good. But there's a scene when they're still in the hospital when Michael Keaton is watching the Grapes of Wrath. And he's watching the scene with Henry Fonda doing this whole speech. The Tom Joe thing is like whenever... So I recognize that somehow... And then when I heard the song, the first was it the time, I'll be there. Yeah, like, I'll be there. Whenever yeah, there's a yeah, I remember that guy. I'll be there. Yeah. Um. And so I, I knew that name so that that stuck with me. So when I heard the song, uh, you know, and, and the song, the the album version starts off with his heart kind of like like a harmonica, just like Nebraska does. He with the album, he's returning that spirit of alienation and dissatisfaction with these social constructs in the country, and he's recalling imagery and themes from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl that he's seeing resurrected and re- returned in this era. Listening to this song as a teenager, I, I keyed into that image of a homeless wanderer, a sort of vagabond trying to survive on the road in the wild untethered to any family or civilization and and the lyrics got a one-way ticket to the promised land you got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand sleeping on a pillow of solid rock bathing in the city aqueduct yeah again like the poetry and the the imagery it conveyed you know it wasn't like necessarily a personal thing but it felt a little bit bigger uh and just like the weight of this kind of like darkness now, getting getting into the live version, I don't know if you actually know. Would you be surprised if I told you that Rage Against the Machine was Angie's favorite band in, in high school? Very much so. It was. She's seen them. I think like I've wait, 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 wait. Your wife, Angie? Yes. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine. She loved them in high school. Like that was her big like what Smashing Pumpkins was to us in the nineties. That was her for like Rage Against the Machine. I think she's seen them twice live. Angela Drew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now she likes like. T.I. and Justin Timberlake and like people like that. Like her, her taste changed, you know. But yeah, she ask, was all- ask her why Tom Morello holds his guitar so high. 
<laughs> I, I will. I'm sure she'll know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I heard the livers know. And, and considering, like, everything that I said, like, this was one of the first Bruce Springsteen experiences that I got into. Just this haunting, dark quietness of just him alone with the guitar. That was, I loved but to now hear this like rocking live version with these guitars and, <laughs> yeah. and Morello's guitars, they, they elevate the song and bring a new energy to it, which I love. And again, I'm going to say, you know, just the, this live version, I love mm. it better. It's, it's better. And it's, it's yeah. just really, really good and for a song that even, even the original, the original version was number 12 on the Rolling Stone list. So wow, what do you think yes. about the ghost of Tom Joad? Yeah, well, okay. I'm not going to retrace exactly what you said because I agree with you. I always love a live version better. And when you showed me this the other day, you know, just recently, I'd never seen this before. Um, when you showed me that this version kicks ass, and even Tom Morello's vocals, mm-hmm. like singing, like, oh my God, it's a really good version of the song. And the dueling guitars kind of thing is just, it's, it, this is awesome. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to go, I'm going to describe basically what with the album. And I'm not going to have a whole lot more to say than what you did, except I thought this was really cool because yes, you touched on everything. I'm not, you know, about the grapes of wrath and this like dust bowl kind of the great depression era of America. And then it was just translated, told through the eyes of somebody in the nineties. But I thought it was interesting because it was kind of, it was a really cool way that I found Bruce Springsteen kind of competing with the band, the grunge rock movement of the nineties. Mm. You know, it was a, it was an interesting thing. It would have been, you know, he did release the double albums, human touch. And I think lucky town, you know, at around like what 91, something like that yeah. uh, around the same time as like the grunge bands were breaking out and even guns and roses released use your illusion one and two at the same time. And it just seemed like all of a sudden Bruce wasn't getting any airplay on MTV. But the grunge movement was kind of this very anti-establishment. We're actually depressed people talking about real issues kind of stuff. They were just told through really loud punk rock guitar sounds and stuff like that. So, but the optimism in the 80s, the Reagan era 80s was all gone. And that's what all these, you know, the 90s garage bands were singing about. And I thought this was a really interesting way for Bruce to not really, his bands didn't sound like those bands that people were interested in, but he wanted to talk about the same type of things. So what I, when I first heard this album, I just thought this was every bit as good as like listening to Nirvana's Unplugged or Pearl Jam Unplugged or seeing these bands strip down their own stuff and just play acoustic songs. That's the way I saw it. And I just thought this was a perfectly timed album to be released and still kind of stay relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And just like with, uh, with Nebraska, like this other example, but this is an album that I love start to finish, but it's, it's not one where I just, I go to a single from it and just listen. Like it's, it's one of those where I, I need to commit to listening to the whole album most of the time, uh, which is why it was, I, I could have picked a number of songs from this one, but I, I had to go with this one as a stable. And then especially after I heard that live version, but, uh, yeah, I will say I will say you turning me onto that live version definitely elevated my ranking of the song. Mm-hmm. I will I, I will totally give you credit for that. Yeah. All right, next up you got. All right, let's go back one more time to Darkness of the Edge of Town, and let's talk about the Promised Land.
So Bruce said that he wrote the song during a road trip across the Southwest with uh, uh, Lil Steven and a photographer friend of his named Eric Miola. And this was somewhere right after Elvis died, like right after Elvis died in 77. I think he died in, he died in August in 77. So this must have been shortly after that. I first heard, and I love the song again, sorry folks, from the live 75 to 85 set. I thought it was amazing. It was, I was attracted to it musically because it was a really, musically, it's a great uplifting song. And I always thought it was about the American, uh, the American ideal. Plus it's in the key of G major, which is so happy. <laughs> it's just, you know, but as I got older, and I read more about the lyrics. It's actually, you know, it suits more the theme of darkness on the edge of town. It's not uplifting. It's it's kind of a really dark and depressing uh, vibe, kind of like the rest of the album. But it still kind of has a hopefulness to it or a mm-hmm. sense of belief that there's a better life out there somewhere. And something like I just like this kind of. You know, we've talked, You, I've said this a couple of times, you know, Born to Run was about getting out of town. Yeah. This is now, this guy is out of town. And now he's like looking back on like what's out there and is it as bleak as he thinks and it's not as happy and it's hope, you know, but, but maybe it's, I don't know. There's just something about that that I think is awesome. But the capper on everything I'm going to say is the, I've recently also kind of discovered a live YouTube video from a concert. I want to say it was 78 at the Capitol Theater in New Jersey. It's a black and white concert video that you can find on YouTube. Um, Three-hour show. Again, it's the show that he actually played and recorded Santa Claus is Coming to Town. (laughs) 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 I just remember that. But um, I want to say, I think this is either the first or second song of the show. I think maybe Badlands is first, and this might be second. It's a really interesting thing because he starts out, there's a one-minute intro that's not on the album, and he plays the harmonica and sings over a piano part, and it's in a different key than the song. And you see him, and it was really cool because it, like, it feels like it's building to something. I can't tell what it is. And then he catches a breath and pulls out of his shirt pocket another harmonica puts the other one back in his pocket, the one he was just playing, and then grabs it. So he swaps harmonicas to do a different key, and then they go into <laughs> Promised Land. And I was just like, why didn't you just do the intro in the same key? Like, I was like, I don't know why you did that, but maybe he just wanted to show he's got two harmonicas. I don't know. But that I thought was awesome. But that live version is so amazing in the chorus, and then the la, 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 like the chorus, getting the crowd singing kind of thing. So this, 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 uh, this is just a powerful song. I love it. You know what? In my sort of headcanon, what I'm going to choose to believe from now on is that John Popper from Blues Traveler was in the crowd that night and said, you know, if he had a bandolier of harmonicas, he could have done that so much faster. That is exactly right. And he could have extended the intro then. (laughs) Um, Do you have any thoughts on it? I I mean, everything that you said, I like it. I I agree. The, The... like lyrically, it seems to kind of it's it's continuing that theme, you know. We, he's not ready to shed those childish dreams of greatness and and love and freedom and everything, but now he knows that it's he, he can't just run. He's actually got to work for it. He's got to fight for it. And I see that in the lyrics, like take one moment into my hands uh, when he says, "I ain't a boy, no, I'm a man," uh, things yeah. like that. I, I really really like. 
And, and I mean, we're not alone because this was number ten on the Rolling Stone list. So you know, nice. it cracked the top ten. It was it was definitely good. worth it. It's a good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just and it feels like kind of unlike a lot of Darkness on the Edge of Town. I feel like the third verse in this song kind of shows like a little bit more of optimism, a little mm-hmm. bit more like you know, there's just if you're taking this road trip because you escaped something dark and nowhere, and then all of a sudden you're seeing that it's you know the world is shitty, but you're like, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and mm-hmm. that's kind of that's kind of the the way I feel like the song ends actually i I just remember this because we had talked about this maybe like a a month ago or something um but the fact that you mentioned uh the the death of elvis the night that prince died uh what did what did bruce do oh god yeah he uh and the whole band was well rehearsed they played purple rain live at at his concert and i guess and it was fascinating because from what i remember because this made all the news outlets and stuff like that Mm -hmm. it was it was it was awesome i remember i don't think everybody in the crowd knew that prince had died yeah and i think i think i think it was like in real time like maybe prince died earlier in the day and the band was just so freaking good (laughs) that, that they were like prince prince announced it to the crowd and then they played Purple Rain live, like the night he died. And I'm just going, oh, my God. And if you watch, and, and I think, I, you know, we've talked about this. I don't think it's my favorite cover version of Purple Rain. I think other people have done it better. But and nobody's done it as well as Prince. But just the fact that he kind of, like, that was, that was like, what a sign of respect. I mean, mm-hmm. that, was just, that was just a badass thing to do. Yeah. At, a, at, a, at a concert completely go off script and off your set list and then you know make a three-hour concert three hours and 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not the best version of purple rain but it's still right. a really good one uh, i yeah. mean I, there's, there's nothing wrong with it he does a yeah. really good job of it it's and it's and it's bruce it. so yeah. you're just like you know you're like he didn't try to do prince he did right. bruce right he did bruce doing those those lyrics and those melodies and it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a great version so yeah All right, next up on my list, I am going with the song I'm on Fire from Born in the USA. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Oh, I'm on fire. Tell me now, baby, is it good to you? And can he do to you the things that I I can take you high Oh, I'm on fire Alright, this is uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. It's probably tied at first place with the song that you're going to talk about at the end of our set. <laughs> um, it's a very obvious song, but it's it's very intimate. It's about passion and desire. And I think it's interesting that he does kind of an unusual thing. It's not a big, raging rock song that's about love. It's quiet. It's almost brooding. Um, you're you're going to love the connection I made. Um, remember the Thor and Hulk, like fire in Thor Ragnarok? <laughs> You know, you know, you you expect Hulk like Hulk like raging fire. This this song, this song is smoldering fire. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Um, and it, you, you get locked into the tune by that just that drumstick on a snare. Uh, oh, it's, it's mesmerizing. It is. It it just hooks you in and it, it carries you throughout the whole thing. Um, I I, I dig this one. I I considered. I, 
I, I, there were other songs I could have picked, but I had to have this one on my list because of this sort of personal nostalgic connection. Uh, there was a girl I was in love with in high school. She graduated a few years before me uh, and went off to college. But when she came back after her first year away, we reunited briefly. She made me a mix CD and she included this song on it. And she said that this song reminded her of me because the video is just Bruce driving around, you know, thinking about this girl. And she said that I was always driving around at night. And I remember thinking, I was like, okay, that's true, but how, how would she you know, know that? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, exactly. I was just like, how do you know that? And I never got an answer. Um, but yeah, so this is, I, I this song has always kind of stuck with me because it's like, somebody out there thinks of me when they hear this song and that's kind of cool that's awesome did she also like rage against the machine i you know what that's why we're not married today (laughs) 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 and this is number 21 on the rolling stone list cool yeah i i like this song this song like there's i'll be honest with you and i'm sorry if this upsets listeners born in the usa is not one of my favorite bruce albums um but this song was the standout track from it, you know, from one of the standout tracks. I love this song for its simplicity. And you know this, Ryan, because I recently covered the song during the quarantine. Mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a video cover of the song with only three parts because that's <laughs> all there is in the song. And it's, it's that simple. There's a repeating drum track. Max Weinberg just does this mesmerizing kind of, mm-hmm. like it lulls you like, like, a, like a snake charmer kind of thing, just it lulls you into like submission. And then there's keyboards. And then there's the guitar part and that's it. And Bruce singing. So it's very simple and it's also extremely short. I want to say it's like a two minute song. Like there's verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, done. Um, apparently I, you know, I, I remember hearing about this like in, in 82, I got, cause the album came when did born to run or born in the USA came out in 85, 84. Right? 84. All right. So it was early 82. Bruce was just slow picking his guitar and trying to come up with lyrics, scatting lyrics off the top of his head. And Max and Roy Bitten, the keyboard player, uh, came up with their parts on the spot, which <laughs> granted, granted, it's not like there's a whole lot of creativity yeah, to yeah. it, but it's kind of like the song, the genesis for this song from start to finish lasted about 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and I just think that's a cool story. Like, I just love that. Like, you know, this is what's cool about jamming with bands. You know, you hear stories about bands that write a lot of their next album during sound checks yeah, on the, yeah. on the tour they're on. This is kind of one of those things. Like they were just like sitting around in a rehearsal space and Bruce is drumming and all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I can play that. You know? And then all of a sudden, boom, you got a song done. <laughs> so I, I dig this song. Obviously I liked it enough for me to cover it and, and do a version of it. It was, it, it's, it's awesome. And it's, for me, it's probably, it's one of two sound out standout tracks. I'm born in the USA. Yeah. And like you, it's not my favorite album. And as I said before, it's, I, I think it's because the album kind of tells its age. And I like, mm-hmm. if this was something that he could have re-recorded at a different time, I think it would, for me, at least it would age a lot better and it would sound a lot better. Um, have you heard uh, the demo version of the song born in the USA? I think it was on yes, tracks. The acoustic version. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Totally different. It's unrecognizable. Yeah, it's totally. And I love it. I love I do it. Too. It's, <laughs> like I hear that, and I was like, "This is the spirit of what that song." If you listen to the lyrics, like this is the it's it's an angry song. It's it's like yeah, like 
I was like, it shouldn't be this like anthem and everything like that. Like, I, like I've heard he was, he was kind of going for a more satirical feel. It's like your audience didn't get that. No, <laughs> nobody got it. It's like, nobody got it. It's like, it's like they thought you were I mean, campaigning people, for Ronald they tried Reagan's to, re-election. Yeah, they tried they to, they tried to use that. They tried to use that as rallying cries. Yeah, and and maybe you standing in front of the flag and posing like that helped them miss the point. So yeah, I, I but I love the demo version of. Oh I'm man, yeah, great. but it's dark. Yeah. For listeners out, if listeners out there have not heard the original demo of Born in the USA, it's not what you think. All right, let's move on to the next song. What have you got? All right, I am finally going to do a song from the river, celebrating its <laughs> what what 40th anniversary this yep. year. Yep. Um, I'm going to choose "Out in the Street." Put on your best dress, baby. is a great album and it's a double album and it's long and there's a stretch of the album where there's four or five songs in a row that are almost 10 minutes each so <laughs> this is a sprawling album i chose this song because a lot of this album reminds me and i've mentioned this earlier but it it kind of has a very 60s era sort of not quite motown not quite doo-wop but sort of like for if any listeners out there are familiar with jay and the americans mm-hmm. um you know or, or i mentioned eddie and the cruisers that kind of sound there's a lot of songs on this album that sound like that like this song out in the street sherry darling i want to marry you yep. the ties that bind a lot of those kind of have this jersey shore atlantic city soundtrack for 1960s sound it's kind of like this song is honestly it's kind of like what the beach boys did for california in the 60s this album did for jersey and as a matter of fact i I know some of your listeners have mentioned these um ramrod and cadillac ranch are total beach boys songs (laughs) those those could absolutely be the beach boys songs but this song just kind of has that it's a very fun it's a simple feel-good song with like a sing-along chorus that gets stuck in your head sherry darling does the same thing i could have gone either way but it just kind of has that like you like you picture this at a sock hop in the 60s and you want to sing to it and that's it yeah i I had the same notes this song it reminds me of an old-fashioned song something like you feel the influence from the 50s or 60s pop rock the end of the song feels infectious with different vocalists chiming in and, and repeating that same line it's great 
Um, and I'm glad you picked this one because I, you know, struggling to make my list at times, I have the song, the ties that bind on my list mm-hmm. or the song two hearts. And yep. ultimately I left those off. Cause I felt like this one was kind of a good representative for the, those rock and songs from that album. And, and dad and I have talked about the river and I think we're both kind of of the same mind where it's just too long. <laughs> where <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. If he had pared it down to one album and, I have the strongest memory when I was kind of getting into Bruce at the time. And like, again, this would have been later nineties, early two thousands or something. And, and listening to dad's collection, you know, he, he didn't have all of the old songs on CD right away because he, he right. kind of, he, he grew up with them. He had them on vinyl. Then he started getting some uh, cassette tapes or he transferred the vinyls to his own mixtapes. Yep. Uh, and then he started getting CDs. But for some reason, I don't think he had the CD of the river when I was getting into it, when I wanted to hear it. So hmm. I think he had to take out the the records. And I think by, by then they had probably all moved down to the basement. And yeah, yeah. I remember he definitely had the albums. Yeah, I know that. And, and like, I knew, I knew what a double album was obviously, but thinking about it, like when, it, when that comes onto a vinyl record, when, when, albums were split on two different sides and now thinking okay that means there's actually four different sides to this to this like record where you i mean that takes a lot of work from the listener who has to keep playing with their record player and, and dropping the needle and changing things over i was like that just made it feel much much bigger um and i like the experience so yeah i uh, yeah we're only going to have a few songs from the river it is really good but it's kind of it's hard for me to grapple with because a lot of the songs remind me of others and it, there's like like the rock songs or big rock songs. And then the slow, quiet songs that I love are slow and quiet and they don't always seem to mesh. So it, yeah, it's, it's a really good album, but I, I'm not going to say that it's my favorite just because it's hard for me to like really sink, sink into it. Um, but this is a great song. I, I am glad that you picked this one and, and as a representative of like some of those other songs that I would have picked too. So yeah. um, this was, this was number 80 on the Rolling Stone list. I think it could have been higher than that, but it's still. Yeah. yeah but you know, you know, what's funny though. I honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't ranked. So I, mm-hmm. I, I obviously view this with a high amount of, you know, a high esteem I'm, being 80 is fine. All right, from there we are going to go to another song from the river, and the song is Drive All Night. Lying in the heat of the night, like prisoners all our lives. I get shivers down my spine, girl, and all I want to do is hold you This was one that I struggled with whether I wanted to include this one, um, which is crazy because it, this is in my top five favorite songs um, of his. <laughs> but it's kind—it's of, hard. It's been hard for me to explain what I love about it or why. 
and this song took a very literal meaning for me in 2004. Uh, I was out of college. I was living back in Illinois. Angie had one more year at Southern Maine. And I was going to move out to be with her. Uh, that failed. I didn't end up <laughs> staying there. Um, but at first, I, I drove from DeKalb to her dad's house <laughs> in Vermont by myself. I, I really want to tell a story about how you came home. but uh, Okay, I'll get to that because it's a fun story. But first, <laughs> first the story of just me going out there. Um, I thought it would be a two-day trip because it's you know it was like a twenty-hour drive or something like that. But I kept going a little further and a little further. And by the time I was getting tired, I realized I only had a couple hours left. So I was like, I'm just going to press on. I'm just going to keep on going. And by the time I was actually nearing her dad's house, it's on the Connecticut River, and there's this fork in the road before you get there. And it was so early in the morning. It's like four in the morning at this point. And this fog has come up off of the river and actually cuts off where like the road forks. So I couldn't even see that there was this turn. I kept missing it. And I kept driving by the house, like where I'm supposed to be going <laughs> at this point, like three times. And all the while, I'm like, I'm getting more and more tired. It's later and later. I was like, this is dangerous. And I know the house is <laughs> right around here um eventually i found it i think just because the sun started to come up but so anyway i i literally drove all night to see her uh and i was reminded Aww. of the lyrics in the song where he said in the course he says i swear i'll drive all night just to buy you some shoes and to taste your tender charms and i just want to sleep together tonight again in your arms but even even before that even before that story I, I always loved the song. It feels simple. It feels hypnotic. Um, but the end takes this kind of lullaby quality to it. You know, like the, in the beginning, like the drum, it, the drum, it, it's not, it, it feels like a metronome. Yeah. It just sets this pace. And it's a long song too, again, like this is like an eight song that, you know, could just kind of get away from you, but it just pulls me in. And and the the lullaby quality to the end, I think, is very sweet and very romantic. Um, the song was actually written during the darkness on the edge of town sessions. Was it? Um, yeah, but it was. Just, oh, it, it was definitely too, didn't fit that album. It, it didn't fit. It was way too long for most of the stripped down songs in that one. It just it wouldn't have worked. So he shelved it and he brought it back for the river. When the saxophone cuts in like halfway through, it, it takes on this larger scope, and the background vocals give us an operatic quality. I just, I I love it. it it's and. Yeah, when he breaks away in the last verse, this repeating lines and phrases, it feels it feels unscripted. It feels spontaneous sure. and authentic. And it, for me, it's just, it's really powerful. Um, it doesn't feel like it's an important song. It doesn't feel like he's, it's trying to be more ambitious than it is. He's just taking his sweet time with this, this, you know, little story, this lullaby that he's singing. Okay. I'm going to disagree with you. I feel like it is an important song, and okay. I'll tell you exactly why. First of all, I'm so glad you picked this because this meant I didn't have to like screw another song off my list. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful song, but what I found is like, ironically, it goes. Here's why it doesn't fit on darkness. It goes against his previous themes of, uh, of on songs and albums, like in this one, the call of the nightlife and the reckless search for freedom. He hears it and he denies it to stay in bed at home with his girl. And there was something like, like there was something empowering about that. I don't know if it was just the adulthood or whatever, but it wasn't, it, it was like he, like the, the adolescent boyhood 
appeals of being crazy and you know mm-hmm. drag racing and stuff like this is like love is more important and I found that really fascinating. I don't know if it was the first time he kind of started to go that route, but that's, it was the first time I discovered all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute. So he hears the call of the nightlife and he's not going out. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of thing. I mean, dare I say, it's just a straight up love song. Yeah. Um, but it's such a beautiful, it's like a slow dance number. You know, we talked about this before on soundtrack selections. You mentioned the song from um, 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 Pump Up the Volume. Yeah. Why can't I fall in love? Yeah. This song kind of has that feel to me. It's like, I just want to like, mm. like I want the room, I want the world to fade away and I just want to slow dance with my girl to this number. Nice. That kind of feeling, even though it's like eight minutes long. You know? <laughs> but, you know, again, the whole river, I mentioned this before, it's very Eddie and the Cruises. It's very 60s Jersey Shore. I This song gets me at the six minute mark when he starts to belt out the heart and soul refrain. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and he just like you mentioned this. He he kind of goes off script. I don't know if that was just a studio, like him just cutting loose. I don't know if he wrote it. Like we'll never know. But that gets me because it's just he just belts it with all the passion and feeling he has from his toenails to his vocal cords, and he can yell still in key, but it's not like he's singing. He's yelling. And it just, oh my God, it gets me. It gets me. Yeah. All right, really quick, the, the, the conclusion of this story. So, <laughs> Please. Yeah, I had planned it. Like, Angie's got one more year in Maine, and I was going to move out there and try and, you know, find some job or so, do, do something. Of course, I, I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't ready. I didn't have the prospects. I didn't have the money. I just had nothing. But I, I drove out there just to try and be with her. Um, after, you know, a few days, maybe a week or something, it just wasn't working. She's about to start school. And I'm like, I, I think I'm going to have to leave. But before I was going, uh, I, I, I was trying to build her, I think it was like a TV stand. Like a TV stand to hold like story. a TV. I love this and, story so much. I, I put some piece of stupid like dry wood or something like in wrong. I'm like having a tough time assembling it. So I'm like standing up. I'm trying to yank this piece off so I can fix it. And as I do that, I just hit myself in the forehead with this chunk of wood. Stupidest thing in the world. But it just cuts this line across my forehead and starts bleeding down over my eyes and my face. I'm like, this is a problem. So I've got to like walk out of a place like to the bathroom or something and like wash up and people are noticing me. They're like, what the hell is going on? Because um, you're the stranger. Yeah, the I'm the stranger. Like, Nobody like, knows who you are. Yeah, yeah. She got like a single apartment in this dorm, and I'm not a, a student there. So they're like, who are you? What are you doing here? And why, why are you, you bleeding? bleeding? Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, she, you know, she came back from a class or something and I've got like my, like a, a shirt tied around my head, basically, like to keep like the, believe me, and I'm like, I think I'm going to leave. So I'm like, so what happened was then I started driving home and I drive called, all night. Yeah, I, I started driving all night and I called mom and dad, I think from somewhere in New York and just said, hey, leave the door unlocked because I'm going to be home tonight or something like that. And they're like, okay, this is a little weird come home again it's like two three four in the morning or something not thinking anything i just drop my laundry in like the basket or something like that and like go and, and crash and because i've been driving for 20 hours i sleep late meanwhile when they wake up they see this blood covered t-shirt in the laundry and they're like so he was he went to maine to move in with his girlfriend he came back a few days later wouldn't tell we us don't why, know why. <laughs> and his shirt is covered in blood to dad's credit, his first thought was, let's get a lawyer. So he, <laughs> he, he wasn't thinking about selling me out. He was <laughs> Boy, a lot has changed in 10, 20 years. <laughs> yeah.
Anyway, so that was that. And uh, oh my god, that story! That story still gets me every time because I can. I, I'm sorry I wasn't there, but I, knowing our parents, I can absolutely see them discovering this standing by the laundry machine with you in the other room, like asleep, and both mom and dad thinking the worst at the same time, but both having different directions of how to handle this. <laughs> like I just love that thought. Like them saying he killed her. <laughs> like, like, you know, Ryan just killed her probably because of rage against the machine, but Ryan just, Ryan just killed his girl. Mom probably saying, Oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, let's, let's, let's just pack up and leave. And dad saying, no, let's get a lawyer. And also, you know, it's like, did Ryan cover the body? You know, how does he cover his stress? You know, all that stuff. That's just awesome. I love that story. Yeah. Well, you know, Maine is a crazy place. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King does a lot of writing there. I'm he just does, saying. He does. I just, I just, I turned into one of his characters there. <laughs> you uh, high tone he... son of a bitch. <laughs> Again, think about driving. Um, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> just before we move on, the song "Drive All Night" was number 82 on the Rolling Stone list. So I think of all of our picks, it's the highest up there. But uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bring us back. What do you got? Okay, coming down the stretch now. We only got a couple left. I'm going to go with The Promise, but I'm going to choose the piano ballad version from 18 tracks, The Promise. Johnny works in the factory Billy works downtown Terry works in a rock and roll band Looking for that million dollar sound Got a job down in Darlington But some nights I don't go Some nights I go to the drive-in And some nights I stay home Followed that dream just like those guys do Way up on the screen Drove my challenger down Route 9 Through the dead ends and all the bed scenes And the promise was broken I cashed in the field of my own dreams Okay, uh, this song, there is a studio version of it. This song was recorded for Darkness on the Edge of Town. Um... There's so many layers to this song that I've only discovered in my recent years. The song itself aches of, you know, betrayal and a promise being broken. Those are lyrically obvious. But now as an adult, like as in my years of revisiting Bruce, you know, darkness being written after the the betrayal of his manager, mm-hmm. Mike Capel, who you talked about at the beginning. I don't know if there's something, if this is a it, like a... a a semi-autobiographical tale of his relationship, or if it's about a girl. I mean, it's very vague on purpose. He literally does not say what the promise that was broken is throughout the entire song. Right. And I think that's brilliant. I think it's awesome. It's very vague and open-ended, but I think it aches of the potential real life betrayal of Bruce by Mike Capel. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's about. Um, I, I almost thought, there's a part of me, sometimes I listen to it and I think it maybe it's about the same two protagonists in Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. Um, after years have gone on, like I want to, because Bruce has written so many stories that are about characters like in a book. And 
I want to like, for some reason, I want resolution to some of these songs. So my mind wants to make them have a sequel and have them have a resolution. I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's true, but there are times that I hear these two people um, and whatever it's about, there's a lot going on. I kind of like the fact that would, you know, I mentioned this. I really, really like the fact it's a very, it's a very intelligent lyrical quality to leave the end. Okay. This is going to sound strange in Pulp Fiction, the movie, the the briefcase never reveals what is golden inside. Right. Quentin Tarantino leaves that out. And it makes you wonder the entire movie what that is. You don't need to know what it is. Right. But you can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> this song does the same thing to me. And I think it's just fascinating and brilliant and heartbreaking at the same time. And the piano version of the song just kills me. Yeah. I lo- yeah, you're right. Like the, the promise in question is the MacGuffin. It, you yeah, know, yeah, what, it, right. what it is doesn't matter. It's yep. how it affected these people. Yep. Um, I, I agree. I, I've heard that it's about him and his, his manager, Mike Appel. Um, I've like, the, there's some question whether the, the person who broke the promise is he's referring to Mike or he's referring to himself. Um, You could also, you could also talk about like how, like thinking about the characters. I think it's fascinating that he mentions Thunder Road in the song. He mentions Darlington. That's probably what brings me back to. Yeah. There's something that it sounds like he references wreck on the highway. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, you know, like a line that's sort of similar to that. Mm -hmm. So it, it feels like it's very kind of um, like the, 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 Springsteen cinematic universe. It's sort of like yeah. commenting and, and having more of a, a meta, <laughs> meta effect on this of, of what he's talked about before. So I definitely feel like it's it's within the same world, same universe as the as those you know Thunder Road and Darkness sessions. Yeah, uh, and and for being a song that was unreleased for a long, long time, this was nineteen on the Rolling Stone list. Wow, really. Yeah. 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 Now, comparatively speaking, have you heard the the other version, the original version? I've heard both. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I I really really like the demo. Um, uh, yeah. I, I I do like them both. I think they're I think they're similar enough. I think they're both pretty uh, pretty similar. Pretty even that that they kind of they they are still the same song to me. I think. Yeah, um, I think I discovered this song. I think I I don't know. Was it live in New York City? Was that where he played it? I don't remember. I think I saw it was a live concert within the last, I would say 20 years, you know, a recently filmed live concert. I want to say it was live in New York city, but I can't be, I can't guarantee it, but Mm -hmm. there was a version where he played that live. And that was the first time I ever heard it. The Mm -hmm. very first time I ever heard it, even though I think I already had 18 tracks. I don't think it, you know, it didn't register. I didn't pay attention to something. And then he played it live him by himself at the piano in a stadium and I'm like, oh my God, what is the promise? What happened? I'm like, what happened? Uh, another another unreleased song from Tracks that I really, really like is the song Happy. I want to give a shout out to that one too. So. Nice. All right. That brings me to my last song for the selection. This is the one that I swapped out just at the last minute yesterday. Um, and I was, I, I almost went with the song, the river from the river. Um, but instead I am going with the last song from darkness on the edge of town, which is the self-titled darkness on the edge of town. Well, still out the but that blood had never burned in her now here she's got a house up in Fairview In a style she's trying to maintain 
this felt thematically appropriate uh, as as Darkness was one of the first Bruce albums that I bought. Um, I started my list with Badlands, the first song of the album, mm-hmm. so I'm coming sort right. of full circle uh, and, and closing it out with this one. There is a more pragmatic worldview to this song, but only up to a certain point, I think. Um, there's no more lofty romantic ideals about racing in the street and escaping <laughs> with your girl. Um, he actually, the girl, in, he sings in the first verse, she's moved on. Uh, they didn't last because she moved on, but he is still doing the same thing. He is still racing. He's still chasing that dream. Um, there's a secret truth in the second verse that strikes me of like this feeling of denial of the self. The third verse, the singer has lost his wife and his money. He won't get that magical, happy life that he dreamed of. It's just not there. But he's still racing. He's still chasing that childish dream of glory and escape because he can't stop. Yeah. This is the only thing that he has, but creeping in is that realization that it's a race he's going to lose. You know, he'll never catch what he's got. That it's it's inevitable that is the darkness on the edge of town. This sort of creeping finality. Um and to me it just it felt very personal because I am I regularly read and podcast about comic books and the cartoons and TV shows that I loved when I was a child. In many ways, I never grew up and I am still indulging in the things that I loved as a kid. Um, and it's hard to look at my who I am as an adult and now a family man and reconcile. Did I make the right choices? Should I have shed these things before and committed to more of a stable and lucrative path. Um, what, 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 where, what will my legacy be? What, and, and am I, can, can I stop doing the things that I love? Um, well, I'm older than you and I haven't yet. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't, I was, I was going to let it be, be my story, but there you go. Um, I mean, I, I, I went through this song again last night and just like, played it repeatedly a couple of times and I felt like what Bruce is singing about in the song I wake up feeling like this every morning and I go to bed feeling like this every night so <laughs> yeah so that's that's that okay um first of all I can't I I have to mention this before we go any farther darkness darkness <laughs> <threatening everybody. laughs> darkness brother darkness that's you and i right now <laughs> i've waited all show to drop that because i knew you were gonna drop this song and that's, <laughs> i have to i have to go there. okay so <clears throat> first of all um when we had talked about doing this podcast a couple god almost weeks ago um i'm you, you mentioned a previous song um, two hearts and I'm glad you swapped that out I'm really glad I didn't have a whole lot to add to that I have a lot more to add to this so I'm, I'm happy you mentioned this this is a really good example of his writing style having changed from singing about his own adolescent youthful adventures um, of the first couple of albums um, to adult themes and having to like live through life's experiences and again you know we've talked about this you know this three-year ongoing legal battle with his former manager which kept him from releasing music for three years so he had 70 songs to go into this new album 
I've heard that this is the last song that was recorded for the album. And once he completed the song, he changed the title of the album. Like this was just, this just happened at the last minute. I, I, I mean, this, the, the whole album kind of sums up a struggle to be positive and be optimistic. It, it, you know, the lines in this song, like I lost my money and I lost my wife, but those things don't matter to me now. You know, stuff like that. Oh my God, that's weight. There, there's weight to that. That's deep. That's heavy. But in a pure Springsteen fashion, he still writes about characters that live through the darkness and simply won't give up hope or won't quit or keep getting up. You know, I, I, this is a weird analogy. And don't, you know, I'm sorry if this seems like I'm going off the reservation. But Springsteen has a lot of, in the movie Rocky Balboa, Mm-hmm. The, the you know where Rocky's yelling not yelling but kind of lecturing his son who's complaining about how how hard it is to be the son of of Rocky and he's like yeah you know you don't know what it's like for me you know blah 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 you know it's so hard to be me he's like I wish you could you know he's basically he's a whiner he's complaining yeah. Milo Venemila is just whining and Rocky's whole speech is very Springsteen <laughs> it's so Springsteen where he's talking about you know life is not about how hard you can hit, but how hard you can get hit and keep getting up. That's what winning has done. And something about that, maybe Springsteen looks a little Stallone-ish. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. There's just something about that, that there's a way to that. And this song kind of encaptures that. Like I'm it's a per, it's, I'm it, it works for you to end your, your list with this because there's a, there's a darkness on the edge of town, but He's gonna plow through it, whether you know, come hell or high water. He's gonna keep fighting to get out of it, and that's that's where I'm at. So I'm glad. Yeah, this is a good song for you to close with. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, number eight on the Rolling Stone list. Of so. course, it is. Nice. All right, bring us to our final proper song of the episode. All right. Well, this is going to go. I'm, I'm picking this. First of all, a lot of our listener feedback has have echoed my sentiments on the song. And I'm happy about that. And I'm going to go with kind of, I, I want to do this kind of, you know, piggybacking a little bit on what you opened with, or with when you talked about growing up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to choose No Surrender off of Born in the USA. Well, we busted out of class, had to get away from those fools. We learned more from a three-minute record, baby, we ever learned in school. Tonight apparently wanted to leave this off the record i heard and little steven refused to let him leave it <laughs> off like he he was you know being like pseudo producer consigliere you know mm-hmm. um little steven said nope nope you're not leaving it off whether or not the do lyrics you, do you know do you know like why or what the like the gist of their argument was no 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 so, idea I, so what i've what i've heard and I, you'll you'll get to this i'm sure when you're talking about the lyrics like 
basically Bruce thought it was too much like a Born to Run song, like oh, thematically, yeah. lyrically. He was like this. He he felt like he was repeating himself. He's like, you know, this is too much like backtracking, like going backwards. I don't want to <laughs> do this again. And and Stevie was basically like, why would that be a problem? <laughs> he's, he's like, go. Oh, oh you don't want to repeat the best stuff you've ever done on Born to Run. It's like, it's like I, I don't think you know what the problem is, man. So yeah, that that was kind of how he convinced him. Yeah. Oh my God, little Steven is so the man. First of all, actually, I want to give a shout out right now. There's a uh, there's a music channel on TV called Axis. I don't know how many people actually watching or listening get that, but they have a series called The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Um, if you can look it up, you can probably find it on YouTube, but check out The Big Interview with Dan Rather. He recently did an interview with Lil Steven. And it was a one-hour interview with Stevie Van Zandt, and he talked about his own music, his history, his upbringing. And, of course, half of the episode was about being with Bruce Springsteen. Lil Steven is a fascinatingly intelligent person. And he talked about even The Sopranos to a certain extent. But, Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, it was a great interview. Like, I have so much respect for this guy. I love this guy. And he talks about, I'm not going to reveal it, but he talks about why he wears bandanas on his head and won't show his head. There's a reason. Watch the show. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'll leave it at that. Now, going back to No No Surrender. um, First of all, thank you for adding that color commentary. I appreciate that. Just a bit outside, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, what I love about this song, and again, I think I've heard rumors that this original working title was Brothers Under the Bridge. But it it may be about his band or it may be about his lifelong friends or whatever, but it kind of has that like us against the world vibe kind of thing. Like everybody that's had like a gang of buddies or like, uh, God, uh, uh, in Young Guns, like pals. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. It has that kind of vibe. Like it's us, like together we can take on the world. Mm -hmm. And it's about... It's also about the everlasting power of music. You know, like I, I swear to God, and I, I hate to say this, but even Taylor Swift has quoted this. We learned more from a three minute record baby than we ever learned in school. I salute that line. I have <laughs> felt that. Ryan, I'm sure you have too. There's something about that that is so, oh my God. I've learned more about through Bruce Springsteen. I've learned more about life. I've learned more about my station in life. I've learned more about the world in my immediate purview i've learned more about the world outside of my purview like there's there's i've learned more like you can experience so many things through music i just this is insane i personally kind of like the melancholiness the uh the acoustic version which i think dad had a record of it was like an ep a four song ep of where he did this acoustically and it sounds a little bit more downtrodden a little a little sad um i actually like that song a lot more and again i'm sorry i keep saying this i heard it first but but the full band album and then seeing this live i just think this is a perfect compliment to growing up and I don't know if it was intentionally that way, but it's again, like I mentioned this before when we were talking about growing up, there's something about that. This is Bruce being nostalgic about yeah. his own personal life. He's not talking about characters. He's not writing about these mythological beings and these things, these adventures that he didn't experience. I feel like this is him, you know, writing about, you know, he had 10th Avenue freeze out growing up in this one are him talking about his own life. And mm-hmm. That's why this song grabs me and it moves me and it's an epic rock song and it jams and the it's it's it, you like you want to sing it you want to close like this could close in it this could close a concert 
And for that reason, I wanted to close my list with this song. And I'm glad you did. And I, the three songs that you mentioned there uh, with Freeze Out and, and Growing Up, especially in this one, they've got swagger. And they've kind of got that swagger from youth. Um, and and I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a rock anthem. It's romantic. This song has a mantra as its chorus. No retreat, no surrender. Uh, it, and that's great. That's just a great hook. So, yeah, absolutely good. Um, 37 on the Rolling Stone list. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, I mean, we, we covered a, a, a wide swath. <laughs> Notable, the number one song on, there, on the Rolling Stone list did not make either of our list. And it's because we talked about it on the, the Father's Day episode. We talked about it at the beginning of this one. And the song is Born to Run. Uh, the, the, the title of the song for the, the album that we've been talking about. And I do love the song. It's it's great. It's quintessential. It's got everything that we ever think about about Bruce in the lyrics of that song and in the music when he sings, "We got to get out of here while we're young, because tramps like us, baby, we were born to run." That's like that's the epitaph. That's what you go you put on the tombstone. Um, it's 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 declarative. Uh, it, it, again, kind of going back, it feels like it should be the first song on the album, and then Thunder Road kind of took its place. So this one feels right to be the first song on the second side, which if you experiencing it as a vinyl record, when you have to flip it over, that feels a little bit more momentous. Um, the, the physical act of that, of starting the song feels like you're engaging with it. And I really, really like that aspect of it. It's funny because I never intentionally set out to do this. This was never a thought in my head, but of all the shows that I've played as a live musician over the course of God, 20 years now i mean i don't know how long i've been doing it i think it's interesting that i've always had a disdain for doing cover songs because i wanted to promote my promote my own music but i also knew that cover songs engage the audience and if people are sitting there for 45 minutes listening to me play stuff that they don't know what the word like people tune out that's normal so cover songs are an integral part of every musician's set when you're coming up and I think it's really interesting that I have played more Bruce Springsteen songs live than any other artist. I have done three cover songs of Bruce. I'm on Fire, which I did on YouTube recently. Thunder Road, which I did failed horribly, but I've tried that before. <laughs> and, and Born to Run, which I dedicated to Remy. God bless. Oh. Rest, rest, rest in peace, Remy. Love you. Shout out. Um, but that song with the harmonica, I did it. I, I, I did the acoustic version of that song. And so for all things considered, this podcast was the impetus of this podcast was dedicated for more, most importantly for the anniversary of born to run. It is personally my favorite Bruce Springsteen album. So for listeners listening, honestly gloss over the fact that the song didn't make our list because I kind of feel like we, we addressed it pretty much, uh, you know, in its own merit anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that is what we got, listeners. Hopefully, you you enjoyed this uh, double size boss sized boss sized episode. Yeah, uh, dedicated to the music of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, we we mentioned several uh, of our listeners' favorites, but uh, leave leave us some feedback. Tell us what else you liked. Are Please. there songs that we forgot? Uh, are there songs like? Do you have stories about seeing? How many of you have seen him live? Uh, what was that experience oh, like for yeah. you? Um, how did you discover him? Did any of our stories or our songs make you think of something? You know, just uh, like tell us, give us more. Yeah, did any of you almost kill your girlfriend? Um, like in the past, you know, that's something that people should 
pay attention to. I, I want to say, Ryan, I really think that this was a brilliant idea to incorporate the listener feedback ahead of time because I will give credit to that that block of listeners that you mentioned in the middle. You made me go back and revisit some songs that I hadn't heard in a long time or maybe I'd never heard. And I appreciate that. It was fun and nostalgic, and I've discovered some new gems that I wasn't aware of. So shout out to everybody that participated in the making of the show. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I think we will probably, when, when we have enough lead time, I think we will try and do something like that in future episodes, too. Yeah, love it. Love it. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. As always, thanks for listening. Oh,